0: Today's show is brought to you by Paris Green, a most French and Paris-like store located at 77 Oak Street, downtown Ashland, Oregon. It's so French, you can't believe how French it is! Big floppy hats, pictures, jewelry, you name it. Beautiful things, lots of French things, very French and France-like, like Gabby, the proprietor of Paris Green. I live above Paris Green and now work in the store a couple of days a week. It's beautiful. I like France. I like French jazz. I like French fries. So come in. 77 Oak Street, downtown Ashland, Oregon. Or check them out online, Facebook style, at Paris Green Ashland. Facebook. I am Citizen 44.
1: Marky. Hi mommy. How are you? Thinking of you. Not that moment though. I was thinking of you earlier.
0: I was thinking of you last night and yesterday.
1: I was thinking of you yesterday too. You were when? Why? I don't know what I was thinking, but I I remember. I don't know. You're very special. I mean all my children are special. I'm just saying at the time when I was thinking of you, you're special.
0: Ditto. Remember that term, ditto?
1: I do, and I use it.
0: Where did ditto come from?
1: I don't know. Did you get your uh, charger yet? I did, thank you.
0: Sam handed it to me yesterday when we were on our way to his wrestling match. Okay. At 1 o'clock this morning, I saw one of the greatest videos I've ever seen in my life, and I'm getting all choked up about it right now. What was the video? There's this man named Jeremy Rifkin, who is single-handedly changing the face of the earth. He has already been asked to come to Germany and help them with what he deems as the Third
1: Industrial Revolution. What is that?
0: That's exciting. That's exactly right, Mom. That is the word I would use to describe what I was presented. it the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life, and... You know that I am not an optimist. I have no faith in us as a species to do the right thing. But I'm a hopefulist because I know that we can should we choose to. And he, too, is what he calls a guarded hopefulist. I'm not guarded. I really do have hope. He has the answer, and he's guarded about our ability to execute. Where did you see this? I followed Jim Carrey on Twitter, the actor, artist, now very conscious, awake, and challenging humanity person. They're very uncomfortable with Jim Carrey right now, the humans in in the world, because he has arisen, he has awoken, awakened, and what has come out of him scares people because he's telling the truth about the world. Do you know what is the second largest cause of destroying our atmosphere?
1: The second?
0: Yeah, the first is buildings. Buildings, number one. Number three is the automobile industry. Take a guess at what the number two reason is that we're destroying our planet and that we have global warming right now.
1: It's not the automobile.
0: That's number three, mom. Number one is buildings. Number three is the automobile. What is the second most dangerous behavior and activity that we conduct that is destroying our world right in front of us? I don't
1: know.
0: Raising cows for food.
1: Raising what?
0: Cows for food. Oh. The soil that we have to destroy the rainforest for, to to put down as fertilizer so they can eat, and shit so we can eat their bodies, is the second leading cause of carbons going into the air and destroying our climate. The reason why there are storms and fires and everything happening on the planet Second reason is because we're not willing to stop eating a hamburger. I am. Okay.
1: But, well, that's does that it. Include turkey. Wait. No, does no, that no. Turkey? no. we're talking
0: about raising cows. The rest will follow. It's a natural evolutionary process. You have to be willing to sacrifice one thing to save yourself and your brothers and sisters. The hamburger is the first thing. The rest is easy. If you can give up a hamburger and your car, and we can retrofit all our buildings to become the digital masterpiece that it's going to be, then we're gonna be okay for a while and maybe we'll not be destroyed by Mother Nature.
1: Well, we've, we've been okay for, what, maybe, I mean, I could go 5,000 years, but I could say a million.
0: We've been okay? How many people have died in the past 20 years from weather-related catastrophes. Um, So how fine have we been? How many people have unnecessarily had to leave the planet because of our behavior that dictates how weather happens to us now? We're not good at all. He is pointing out this beautiful, not a way out so much, but a way in where we can leverage what we've been doing, which is this new beautiful technology, but make it work for us so well that it will literally be free to live. I thought I had the answer the other day. I was actually talking about it in the laundromat to my friend Jerry Sullivan, who owns Ashland Electric Bike. And I had proposed to him, and it was just he and I in the laundromat. I proposed to him that we eliminate money altogether and not become a sharing economy, but economy that is created based on credits. Not credit, as in credit cards, but as in credit. For instance, years ago, I created a campaign called American Credits. And I don't know if you saw these advertising pieces I did, but it said, American Credits, you deserve credit for being here. And I think everybody does. You were invited here. You belong here. You shouldn't have to suffer needlessly. You shouldn't have to be homeless or fucking hungry or thirsty. It's absolutely stunningly ridiculous. So I came up with this idea of American credits where whatever you put in, just like in life, you get back. You set up a credit system whereby everybody has, when they get here, they have a certain amount of credit. That credit gets you what you need fundamentally. Everybody puts in what they want to put in. And the more you put into the world positively that benefits the rest of the world, the more credit you get to leverage what you're doing And you can invest your credit in what other people are doing that's good. If you want to sit on the couch and masturbate and watch video games for the rest of your life, you can. But you will only get the credit that allows you to live that life. You will not be able to do more things than that because you're not earning credit. Credit is a global thing. Credit is not a company thing. It's not a state thing. So how do you earn it? You earn it by doing whatever it is your passion is. Whatever you're passionate about, and because we are now in the phase of effortless learning.
1: That's not going to happen.
0: This is the beauty, and don't take this personally, but thank God we die. Because your thought of that's not going to happen is going to go away.
1: Mark, Mark, I have a call. Come in. Do you want to hold? I will hold.
0: Can I have some on-hold music, please?
1: To them,
0: I'm talking. These are the people who called you that are still here that didn't leave. Ah, oh, I
1: don't remember them.
0: Who was on the phone? It was Judy. Judy, Judy, Judy. You know, he never hey. said that.
1: Yeah, I heard that. Oh. But I call her Jude.
0: Yeah, you don't just call her Jew. That was from the last show. No, someone. So, oh,
1: I don't. I, that was someone me. I said that.
0: The, I said the, the first syllable of her name is Jude. Oh, right, it was you. And she is a Jew. And so it was me, not you.
1: Yes. No, I call her Jude. Yeah. Hey mom, In when the fact. moon hits
0: your eye like a big pizza pie, what's that? That's a Mori. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 31. And uh, it's a pretty interesting show, I must say. Today on the show is Dr. Rick Kirshner. Dr. Rick and I met about 12 years ago. He asked me to do a logo for him for his business called The Art of Change. And uh, I gave him something he loved, which is fantastic whenever I hit a home run on any level with somebody professionally or personally. So uh, yeah, he turned that into some things and we're going to talk about some stuff. And he's got a story to tell. He actually uh, created a documentary called How Healthcare became Sick Care, The True History of Medicine. And I have to say, I was just totally bowled over by the audio uh, that was delivered by uh, Dr. Rick and keyed in on that. So uh, I went ahead and extracted the audio from his movie, with his permission, of course. And I'm going to represent it to you on a limited time basis on uh, both of my websites, uh, aaronsburg.com and citizen44.com. It's a pretty important story that most people I don't think are aware of, and uh, it's a pretty sad story, but it's, you know, one of these stories that I think offers opportunity. can't do anything about something until you know something about something, so I'm here to to share some something that has been told to me that I'm telling to you through me on this thing. So there you go. Uh, An equally important guest is uh, Brent Kell, the CEO of Valley Immediate Care here in Southern Oregon, super great guy who really cares about healthcare. Uh, so we're going to talk to those guys. I'm super stoked about this potential millennial movement. Uh, you can find this documentary at impact.vice.com. I will mention it again at the end of the show. The documentary is called The Third Industrial Revolution, hosted by Jeremy Rifkin. I'm not going to say much more about it. I, I touched on it in the opening with my mom, and uh, you, can, you can hear clearly it is, has affected me deeply uh, because I, it seems real to me, and it actually validated me doing this podcast on a variety of levels, but uh, we're talking about sharing the gifts that we have and information that we have, and I'm doing that now. This is a listener-supported presentation. So there's a donate button on the bottom of my citizen44.com website and you know, I am super blessed and uh, it's, (sighs) yeah, I can't even describe it in mere words. It's ridiculous. It's going to be a good show. I'm glad you're here and uh, let's get on with it. So Brett, you've been very kind to come here. You're the CEO of Valley Immediate Care. That sounds
2: like a huge job. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I, I've kind of grown into the role. We started with one clinic, and you know, we started with seven people when I got there, and we've grown to 120 something now. But uh, because we've grown over time, it doesn't seem like a, a onerous job at all, really. When did you start? Practice started in 1999. I yeah. started with the company in 2002. For me, maybe 15. How old are you now? I'm 59 now.
0: Okay. And how did you think to go work for this company?
2: Uh, a lot of goat trails. Just finished working with the orthopedic group here. I was operations director. My background is in x-ray and uh, actually I, I teach x-ray still and I, I was telling students that I think I started taking x-rays about 43 years ago.
0: And you live where in the Rogue Valley?
2: In Medford. Okay. East Medford.
0: And how long have you been in the Rogue Valley?
2: I've been in the Rogue Valley about 26 years. How do you like it here? I love it. I love the outdoors. I love hiking and fishing and skiing and climbing and so. The only thing I miss a little bit, I, I grew up all over California is, is the cultural diversity. Uh, it's getting better, but Southern Oregon still fairly what? monoculture.
0: This is like a big white box of Tic Tacs. we <laughs> Where in California were
2: you? Uh, I kept moving north. I was born in Southern California. Where? Uh, uh, La Mirada is where I lived when I was born. Went to grade school down there. Uh, went to high school in Bakersfield. College in Fresno, I just kind of kept moving north uh, and uh, ended up here. My folks retired up here, and so that kind of brought me up here.
0: Are they still around?
2: No. No, they both yeah. passed now. Okay.
0: What did you think of Southern California as a kid growing up?
2: It was okay. I had good experiences. I I go down there now, and it's a different world. But uh, growing up, it wasn't a bad place to live, I don't think. Uh, I had a lot of good friends, still got a lot of friends down there. We always kind were lucky enough to live up by the hills, you know, ride your bike and go run and... and
0: what were your parents doing at the time when you were a
2: youngster? Uh, my dad was a corporate attorney, and so he worked for oil companies my whole life growing up. And he was working for uh, Shell Oil and then Getty Oil. And uh, uh, the reason he moved to Bakersfield, Getty, and his wisdom, really wanted the the corporate attorneys to know what the oil fields look like. So he built the corporate legal office in the middle of the oil fields in Bakersfield. <laughs> and so it was kind of an odd that deal. You so drive up it. Really weird, really weird.
0: What kind of an attorney
2: was it? Uh, mostly oil and gas. And he did a lot of land use deals, uh, worked on a lot of cogeneration projects, early co- co-generation projects.
0: Did he ever have to defend them? Uh, yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He was kind of the other side of the environmental side. Well, he that's was, what I meant. I mean, it's yeah.
0: kind of interesting. You're in healthcare. And he was kind of defending things that are not very healthy.
2: No, that's very true. Yeah. Very true. Huh. Although the, the, some of the cogeneration he did was he was kind of on both sides of the fence. He uh, advocated for scrubbers on these steam plants. So they inject steam into the wellhead to, to make the oil uh, less viscous, be able to pump it out. Well, then they use that waste steam to produce electricity. But some of that, that steam, it picked up a lot of toxins in the oil. And so he right. advocated for some real good scrubbers on those to, to clean up that air. So, okay. so he, he had a conscience
0: him. around what he was doing uh, a little bit.
2: Yeah, as much as an attorney can have.
0: And what was your mom doing?
2: Uh, staying at home. I was lucky enough to have a stay-at-home mom and took care of us. How many is us? Uh, two of us. Myself, my sister. How old your sister? She is five years younger than I am. She lives down in uh, Sacramento now. What's she doing? She uh, works for Ericsson, which is uh, telecommunications. Tele- yeah, yeah. So she sets up large scale telecommunications They're systems huge. for company. Yeah.
0: And what were you doing? I mean, I know you're riding your bike and doing your thing. How was school? What What were your friends seen like?
2: I was always kind of doing my own thing. I, I, I was not real involved in team sports. I, I've always love the outdoors. So yeah. when I had time, I was out on a bike. I was out climbing. Just east of Fresno is this beautiful area of the Sierras. It's in between Yosemite Park and uh, Sequoia Park, Kings Canyon area. It's Sierra National Forest. And there's some gems up in that area that, that, you know, people focus on the parks, but there's some really gorgeous high country.
0: How'd you do in school?
2: Uh, okay. It was never my favorite thing. You know, I saw it as a, as a way to get, you know, what I needed. When I went to uh, Fresno State, I did ag business and, uh, Got a school with ag business thinking I could be a farm manager, work outdoors, and all my friends were getting jobs as ag loan officers. And I, What is that? You sit in a bank and you work on land deals with, you know, lend money for people who want to buy farms. You sit in a three piece suit and said, I said, no way. Yeah. So yeah. I was I was managing some veterinary practice and then, so I just stayed doing that for a while.
0: You did the animal thing, and that's mm-hmm. how you started out. Yeah. And why did you gravitate towards that?
2: I enjoyed animals. Actually, I started, uh, I got a Boy Scout merit badge in veterinary science when I was at Bakersfield. And the veterinarian I worked with on getting this merit badge says, you know what? We need some help on the weekends." So that's kind of started. So I started as a sophomore in high school. Extra help, kennel help. And then gradually kind of started doing more and more tech work. Uh, Started taking x-rays and helping in surgery and that sort of thing.
0: It was fun. Did you go to school and get your degree or whatever you needed for actual veterinary?
2: No. Nope. Grew up in the business, okay. uh, and uh, it was it was cool. The veterinarian I worked with in Fresno did all the Fresno Zoo work, so we got oh, to do all kinds of cool exotic stuff. You know, get in a tank with a, a hippo and, and do surgery on a hippo, wow. in, actually in the tank, and waiters, and you know, uh, artificial inseminated giant anteater, and all kinds of weird stuff. That you, That's you ridiculous. Went after. Yeah, wow. it was really cool.
0: What's the most odd thing that you participated in with an animal in that way?
2: It's probably the giant anteater uh, deal. You said you
0: inseminated
2: it? uh, Fresno Zoo acquired two giant anteaters from the San Diego Zoo. They had never bred, and giant anteaters are pretty endangered and rare. And so they thought, well, gee, let's see if we can get these things to mate. And they've moved them in a nice environment, nice uh, kind of natural habitat. Candlelight dinner, bottle of wine, all that stuff, whatever anteaters like. And so, nothing. And so we decided, well, we're going to artificially inseminate them. And they're pretty big critters, they're probably 100 plus pounds, a lot of hair big tails big massive claws so we got a bunch of experts in people came from zoos all over the country to kind of do this project because this is a really important project so they said okay we're going to anesthetize the the male first and collect the semen so we anesthetized the the one anterior and you have to tape their claws together and uh, so we lift the tail we go oh no that's the female so we put her on a gas anesthetic and said we're going to keep her asleep let's get the male nobody looked first well you can't look because they're 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 not real pleasant they don't like people I a lot see. they got this massive tail and probably six or eight inch long fur that hangs down so you can't wow. really see anything down there right. so we thought we will keep the female down keep her asleep and then we'll get the male finally after three or four sticks of this pole syringe we finally anesthetize the other and you lift up the tail and guess what another girl another girl <laughs> <laughs> so they have this assembled this group this is i can't remember where all the zoos they came from but there's like eight or ten people most of you know from all over the country come right. to do this it's like
0: so you're putting animals to sleep for nothing for nothing did you ever find a male?
2: No. not so At least not while I was there. Nothing happened. They lived happily ever after. And
0: were they the last two? They. Were no,
2: two no. <laughs> Luckily, they were the last two. <laughs> there was others around, and I don't know how that's gone from then, but that, that was that was cool. That's,
0: that's pretty strange. Give me another example.
2: I've got a friend who is uh, a Sumatran uh, orangutan who is named Keeflee. I think he is still at the San Diego Zoo. you There's say a, you have
0: a friend? A friend. He's a friend. A friend who's
2: an orangutan? Yeah. We had an orangutan that had swallowed um, the little ties that go on spinach bunches, the, the metal... Wires yeah, yeah. had swallowed one of those and uh, was having some gastric upset vomiting, wasn't eating very well. We'd x-rayed uh, this orangutan and uh, needed surgery. And the zoo at that time had no surgery facility so we'd bring him to our clinic to right. do the surgery. So we did surgery and we didn't feel like it was, it was going to put this, this orangutan back in the environment now. And he was, I think Keith was like eight or nine years old there, kind of like an adolescent kid. Um, And so we kept him in the clinic for several weeks while he recouped.
0: So you buddied up?
2: We buddied up. Yeah. We'd go for walks, walk around the building. And, and for years later, he, I didn't know he recognized me. The front of the enclosure was very nice moat and very nice habitat with palm trees and things in the back where they slept was a kind of a wire enclosure and they closed the gates. So it was kind of a controlled environment. And so his favorite thing to do was to pull himself up on the wire in the back and Make kissing kissy noise. And when you got really close, he'd either urinate on you or spit at you. (laughs) (laughs) But I was the only one for years he would not do that with. (laughs) That
0: is so funny. How long did you work with the animals?
2: Actually, the Fresno Zoo is now called the Paul Chaffee Zoo. So uh, Mm -hmm. Paul Chaffee, he contracted uh, pancreatic cancer and passed away uh, during the time I was there. Uh So we were backup veterinarians for three or four years. Then when he passed on, we were the primary for a number of years. So it was probably a total of eight years, probably. I did a lot of zoo work.
0: So how did you make that transition from animal to uh,
2: human. During that time I was climbing all the time and I, I got certified you in avalanche. A monkey life. I was a monkey. I had a big red beard and they kind of said, you know what? I know how he likes you. He thinks you're an orangutan. Yeah. yeah. So uh, for a while I was doing a lot of climbing and I got certified national avalanche uh, certification because I was going to work in ski areas. And you know, you get the family, you get married, and you got to get a real job. And veterinary pay is not especially at tech. You're doing it for a lot of it. Yeah. And so I got to get a real job. I like x-ray, so I'm back to x-ray school and got my x-ray license, uh, which is in uh, 89, I guess.
0: Okay. And you're married? Married, uh-huh. Got some kids? Got,
2: yeah, adult kids. We got four adult kids between us. So is this your second marriage? Uh-huh, yep. Okay.
0: How'd the first one go? Okay. It was, you know, the people change. Were you very young when you got married? Uh, fairly young, yeah. What's fairly
2: young? Oh, 28.
0: Ah, no, not you're then. not nearly as young. I was barely 20.
2: <laughs> oh, that's then. young. That's really young.
0: Yeah, that was foolishness.
2: And how that then go?
0: It went 26 years. So you were married and you had two children with your first
2: uh-huh. boy. boy and a girl.
0: And how old are they now?
2: Uh, let's see, born in 91 and 93. So it'd be what? 25, going on 25 and going on 27.
0: And well, what are they doing?
2: Uh, my son is up in Portland. He just finished Portland uh, State uh, oh, yeah. and has a dual degree in art and business. And so he, uh, yeah, his art is pretty amazing. He's, what does he do? Specializing like, in big murals right now, wow. uh, and he does a lot of stuff. He puts on T-shirts. He has his own company called the Last Bus Club up there, and he does some kind of cool art. Puts on T-shirts and hats and watches. Sweet. And then uh, he's doing some real big murals. He just finished one for a cider house up there, and uh, some pretty amazing stuff.
0: What's a website where people can see what he does? Uh, Last Bus Club. Lastbusclub.com. Uh huh. Okay. Cool. We can pivot for him. That's no good. Problem. Okay. Thank you. And what's your daughter doing?
2: She actually is working for a, a uh, gym up in Salem and does personal training and works at the gym. Okay. Uh, she's done a little bit of everything. She actually worked for us for a while. Did reception and did the phones. And
0: how many facilities are there?
2: Four urgent care practices. We've got an occupational health facility in Medford that does uh, pre-employment physicals, drug screens, uh, treats work injuries. And then we have actually our central office, which is all phones and, and command and control, basically. Right.
0: I know the medical and healthcare field is at the top of everybody's list of things that are difficult and troublesome. And how does that affect your position?
2: Oh, it's it's constantly changing, you know, and um, I'm pretty passionate about providing really good health care to people. I think that's that's my mission. And, and you know, my background growing up and, and actually being a caregiver and an x-ray tech and ortho tech and all that, um, I really love that. And it's, it's difficult sometimes the job I'm doing now. But the way I rationalize in my mind is I can only touch so many people individually. Right. But our clinic now last year, we had over 62,000 patient visits. So indirectly, I can impact the care of that many sure. people. I do have some pretty strong opinions about the health care system, particularly the health insurance. You know, I, I really think when we talk about health care reform, what we should have said is our payer, healthcare insurance reform. There's an awful lot of waste in in that whole system. I think we're at over three. I think it's three point two trillion dollars we're spending on healthcare in the United States. Private insurance companies. Nobody really knows what the profit is. 25, 30 percent, maybe. That's a super high margin of return. That's a man.
0: huge margin. Most businesses are only getting fifteen percent
2: if they're lucky. Max. If they're lucky. And and so the, if you take three point seven trillion, and it's not all private health insurance, but if you take you know a third of that, even a quarter of that is going not towards health care. And, and the other piece to that is, you know, we probably have 25%, 30% of our staff just to bill all these different insurance companies and follow these rules, and, and that's totally waste. And uh, I think everybody that, that knows what they're talking about would agree is we should have gone to a single-payer system. But there's no way insurance lobbyists control well, of so much not. in Congress that there's no way they're going to let that happen. So that's how we ended up with this convoluted, it's not Obamacare, it's, you know, the, the plan we have looks nothing like the vision...
0: What can your organization do? How can you offer any better services? Well, one thing that we're
2: trying right now, we've had some modicum of success, is a membership program. The problem is it doesn't cover catastrophic, but for the stuff that comes up, we create a membership program where people can pay a $10 co payment and any of our prices are half off and it's all listed, it's all transparent. We're also letting people at time of visit sign up. So, um, how much is membership? A membership for an individual is $40 a month.
0: You can be homeless walking off the street, yeah. and you can get a membership.
2: You can get a membership, and you'll get uh, three visits a year with a $25 copayment for an individual. For an employer, we price it cheaper because there's safety in herds, kind of, if we have more employees. If somebody uses full utilization, we lose a fair amount of money on it. But, but if people use you know 50%, 60% utilization, we, we do okay. We, we pay right. the bills. We pay our staff. There's not nothing left over, but we take care of the patients, which is a from my marketing standpoint.
0: That's it. That's a you, that's you yeah. One.
2: Yep. Yeah.
0: And the patient has won.
2: Yep. Uh, most people don't think about this ahead of time. Well, I've that's got them, why it's called urgent care. <laughs> yeah. I've got my insurance card. I got insurance. It's like. Yes, but you've got a $6,000 deductible that's all out of pocket. And they don't start- even know that. No, they have not a clue. So what we do is we have a pretty developed benefits and eligibility team. So if somebody walks in with their insurance and they've got this, this card, um, we take a copy of that card. It actually gets scanned to our central office. And we have some what we call benefits and eligibility specialists. And they're really good at looking at the insurance. They look up you know, whatever the plan is, right. they log into their, I don't know, there's probably a dozen or better websites they have to log in to get all these different insurance. And then they send to a printer behind that reception an explanation of, of their benefit. So patients that have, if they have, let's say they're on all care or Care Connect, it doesn't make sense to those people that, you know, that our, our membership would be redundant for what they have. Right. But if we see people have a high deductible plan, then there's a little box they check on that might benefit from Urgent Care 365, which is our, our program. And so then the receptionist says, you know, here's your options. You got a high deductible plan or here's another option for you. And so that's when those conversations are happening. We've developed a software system that automates the collection part. You put your credit card in, it pings your credit card just like a gym membership. So it saves us costs. We're not sending statements right. for all these things. Uh, so we've been able to streamline it down to this This income from this credit card, dumps into one sweep account, goes in our bank account. Our CFO makes one click a month. Super And genius. so we, we've made it as slick as we can from our end. Well, and it really wow. keeps costs down. So we're aimed at employers right yeah. now. So an employer can sponsor let's so say your employee of ABC Muffler. Yeah. They would sponsor it, it would cost them thirty dollars a month. You would get up to five visits a year in urgent care, which most people that should accommodate. Here's another option. You can sign up today, it'll cost you about a third the price today, you know, but you're you have a membership now right. and so retroactively allowing people to come on. We have an orthopedic surgeon who works with us, which is awesome to have that resource. But sometimes they come in and they think, Oh what's gonna be oh it's a fracture, I'm gonna have a cast and be treated for a while. Membership makes a lot of sense. Concierge medicine's been around a long time. So in concierge you pay a physician so much a month for access, basically. It's like a retainer? Retainer. We're lumped in that same group as a retainer medical practice. Okay. That's what the state of Oregon calls us. Uh, we have to make applications, much like setting up a concierge practice. The State Department of Consumer Affairs wants to look at all our terms and conditions and sure. make sure we're transparent in our pricing, all that stuff. Even though it's not insurance, with the State Insurance Board to make sure that we're. Legit, But across the country, I'm involved in the Urgent Care Association, and there are smatterings across the country of urgent cares that are developing this right now. Um, A friend of mine that runs American Family Care in Portland, Guru Sankar, uh, he's just uh, started a membership program in Portland, and we're working on combining those together right now, so our members will have uh, benefits in Portland and vice versa in Southern Oregon. Our thought is if we can get both Medford and, and Portland together, we have a value proposition to go to Eugene and yes, Bend and all these absolutely. other places to say, hey, we have this group here. And for employers that have statewide employees, it'd make a lot of sense.
0: And how are you marketing? Because I know you're head of marketing and uh, that's probably a big piece of your job.
2: Yes. We already have relationships with several thousand employers. We do drug screening services for a variety of things. Right. Of, and just attempt to have a conversation because you really have to talk about the whole plan. I mean, it's not just a sound bite. You can say, hey, we have this program, Myergy Care 365, but uh, let's talk about your pain points. Because I think employers are struggling. Number one, they're struggling to recruit and retain employees. And this is just an added benefit for thirty dollars a month. How many cents is that an hour? The problem is it doesn't provide the catastrophic care. We can't take care of those catastrophic things. But what
0: is listed under catastrophic?
2: You know, surgeries, um, uh, cardiac events, is it any things like kind of that. Surgery. Um, well, we do lots of little things. We do lacerations repair, and we do open wounds. We take foreign bodies out. But if you have access to protect, you're kind of forced into some sort of catastrophic care, but a lot of times employers can take a very catastrophic plan with a really high deductible and feel good about that because they still have this this other plan for the, the everyday stuff that comes up. Right. And one of the few equations I think most people agree on is early intervention is cheaper intervention, so they can come see us sooner, right. theoretically. The other thing we're talking through now is the idea of the work comp claims for employers, that if an employee has a high deductible plan or maybe they don't have any insurance at all, that knee pain she kind of sometimes tends to be work-related. You can come in for $10, get it checked. It's like, I don't have to claim. Uh, hopefully avoid some conflicts between employers and, and their employees.
0: What about education? How are you educating your potential customers on preventative maintenance, on you know, nutrition, all these things? I mean, I don't even think there'd be hospitals if we all ate well. I don't think there'd be a... That's true. ...most medical...
2: In urgent care, we don't see that as our goal, but I, I think that should be our kind of our mission. I've taken over our Facebook page, and so I'm starting to put some stuff on, you know, flu prevention and, and identifying poison oak, and, and here's how to splint something yourself. One thing I've learned though, by and large, people don't want wellness care, they want sick care. That's why urgent care exists. Urgent cares are being innovative, especially in the payer market, but in all areas, right. we've innovated EMRs, we've innovated uh, online radiology systems, uh, telemedicine. You know, we've been getting more involved in the telemedicine. What is telemedicine? So telemedicine is this whole field of examining patients or examining diagnostics remotely. So the the physician that's looking at either your X-ray, your scan. Uh, your wart, <laughs> whatever it well, is. Can you take a remotely. With
0: your phone and you send it to your that's going on. Virgin? There's
2: a there's a place called Derm Access now that's a bunch of volunteer dermatologists that yeah. you can actually take a photo with your smartphone, put a history in, and send it to a dermatologist that'll yes. look at it. That's, it, that's going now. There's a lot of things that have been around for a long time, things like x-rays. X-rays, you were taken, you sent off digitally to somebody. That's a form of telemedicine. There's some real cool stuff going on with remote monitoring now. There's a group up north of Bend uh, Mosaic Healthcare that has taken this small group of patients that were frequent flyers in the ED that had, uh, had diabetes or hypertension, and they live in remote areas yeah. in, in central Oregon. They have one nurse now monitoring, I think it's 100 and some patients, that have various kinds of monitors that are connected to cell phones that monitor their blood sugar, their their heart rate. Uh, And so that nurses manage those patients, they've been able to reduce ER admissions just by remote yeah. monitoring. There's a group that's uh, working in skilled nursing facilities and mostly assisted living, some in skilled nursing facilities, that puts electronic monitors in different places in people's homes or apartments. And they measure like walking speed. There'll be several in a hall. Oh. They measure phone usage, computer usage. They put one on both sides of bed stand. They can see how often people are getting up in the middle of the night. Wow. And they've been able to prepare predict with 90% certainty, people are going to be admitted from a, a, a re- assisted living to a SNF or a skilled nursing facility within the next month. There's a group that meets called Tau Telemedicine Alliance of Oregon. This group that's doing this looked at these odd pie charts that's created by these devices. They said, boy, there's, there's something wrong with this data on this, this certain patient. You know, things really change during this four-day period. Oh, that patient had norovirus oh, let's look at all the other people in that home and let's see if we can pick out who had norovirus. And they looked, and it was the same pattern. They could tell who had norovirus. So that's going on. The last piece of telemedicine we've been dabbling in a little bit is a remote visit. And so uh, at each of our facilities, we have one telemedicine or we call it virtual room that if we get really busy, let's say Ashland is just getting overwhelmed. And I got somebody in Grant's Pass that is not busy and they can see a few more patients. Depending on the complaint, let's say it's a urinary tract infection. People come in. That's by history. We already have a urine sample. They just need to be talked to them and ask a couple questions, make sure they don't have any kidney problems, send a script for them. And so we're doing load leveling between our, our facilities right now. We also have in our central office, we have a physician that's working in administration a lot of the time now that's that's, um, more rapidly handling questions and calls and concerns with patients because when they go to the urgent care, we don't always get to it like now. And a lot right. of these calls really should be handled now. So that person, if they're not busy, they'll look for the clinics and saying, Hey, put a patient in that virtual room. I can see that patient. And so we have a patient actually sitting in an office, a private office in our admin office, seeing patients in the clinics. Well, that's remotely. that's pretty
0: cool because you're still getting quick service mm-hmm. and you're not waiting
2: yeah. in pain potentially. Right. And since we are doing them inside our clinics, let's say it's a patient, it's a urinary tract infections, we need to check. Somebody needs to tap on their kidneys, make sure that the kidneys are not sore because they, they run a little fever. We're not sure. Right. They can just have the dockets in there, just step in and say, hey, Dr. Penner, can you just tap on the kidneys for me? And then they can finish the visit from there. So if they need an extra pair of hands. Uh, the other thing, our techs, our MAs are getting much better at doing some of these exams now. So they can stay in there with the patient mm. and they can be the hands right. for that provider. So we're we're working on that too, which is is. It's fun for them, too. They get to be more involved in those visits. Uh, some of the stuff we do is, is kind of unique. We call all patients back in three days. We give people a, a five-day kind of window that they can come back for free if, if they have more questions. We call oh. it a five-day promise. So if, you know, gee, I want to get this thing checked again, or I want my wife to come with me, here, what you guys said, whatever. They can come back for that same diagnosis. They can come back within five days. There's no charge for that visit. One of my, my side jobs, I'm sitting, in fact, I'm an incoming board chair for Living Opportunities. So we work with a lot of developmentally disabled folks. Uh, many of them have autism. I've come to the opinion that we're all on the spectrum. And yes, we're diagnosing more autism. I think it's been around forever. I think I'm on the spectrum somewhere. I think there's a lot of us. So I, I have my own opinion on that, that it's just, we're we're just identifying autism. So that's, that's my theory. That's I uh, I'm always pleased to talk at Living Opportunities events about employing people with disabilities. And that, that's my standard statement. I really believe that. And and actually my, my staff, I think is kind of in the same opinion now. I found that people that are given some profound disabilities are also gifted, usually some profound abilities. Several individuals we work with, I would say are savants, uh, that, that we've hired. We have one kid, now I'll call him Jim. He audits charts for us, and what he does is he brings up a PDF document on one screen that is something a patient hand-filled out yeah. on paper. He brings it to the other screen, which is our fields, our demographic fields, in our EMR, electronic medical record system, yeah. and he can glance and he can see if they match just like that. Wow. Scary smart. Uh, he helps us uh, enter invoices into our QuickBooks system, and so uh, we normally have a numeric uh, code on the invoices. And one day, one came with this alpha-long alpha code instead of numeric code. And he asked, kind of difficult to get the words out. Ask our, our CFO, well, what do you want me to do with this? And she says, why? Well, you know, I don't know. He said, I'll, I'll just convert to a number. So just like that, he converted. You know, A would be one, B would be two, and he converted Fucking this. Rainman. Yes. Yeah. I call him Rainman, and, and do you? he said that's okay with him.
0: Okay, you asked him for. I asked him. <laughs> Where are your facilities now?
2: Uh, One in Ashland, which is across from the new uh, dorms in Ashland on Ashland Street and Siskiyou. Uh, And then we have one in in, uh, the Winco Shopping Center, South Medford. Okay. Uh, One in North Medford uh, behind uh, PetSmart, uh, kind of on Delta Waters there in that mess right now that's going on. Uh, And then in Grants Pass, we're off the Parkway 199, right behind McDonald's.
0: Well, brother, I think you've really shed a lot of light on at least your area of expertise in the healthcare field. I did not know about these membership things, which seems huge.
2: I think it's going to be a a big thing. We need to have those conversations with the right people.
0: Brent, pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Mark. It was
2: fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers, man. Hi, Dr. Rick Kirchner. Hello. What kind of a doctor are you?
3: I'm a naturopathic doctor. went to a naturopathic medical school. At the time, there was only one in the country, and that's the one I went to. Where was that? Portland, four-year program. Took three years of pre-med to get in. What year was that? I graduated in
0: 1981. How long have you been in
3: Ashland? I believe I first came down here, I think it was 81. I just graduated from school and we were invited to do a workshop down here that had pretty much everybody who was anybody in this town took our workshop. The very first one we had the city council, all the shopkeepers, the police department, the fire department. They all took the magical nature of communication workshop with me and Rick Brinkman. And when it was over, Jackie Schnitzer at the time was running Small Change down on the plaza, and she and her husband took the workshop, and afterwards she gave Rick and I gift certificates to Small Change, because we'd mentioned we were both raising little girls. So I went in there to cash in the gift certificate, and Jackie walks me across the street to Lithia Park and says, sit down. She said, look around you. Where are you going to find a better place to raise your daughter? And I was a single parent at the time, so I... Took six months to close up my affairs in Portland and moved down here, and I've been down here ever since. Pretty magical move, huh? Oh my God, what a great thing she did for me that day. We've known each other a dozen
0: years. You, frankly, don't look any different, and most of the people I know in this town have remained as youthful as the moment I met them.
3: It is kind of peculiar, isn't it?
0: There's a certain energetic thing here, which is why this woman told you to come here, because it was a life-changing thing that happened to
3: you. Absolutely, yeah.
0: And me, and everybody I think that shows up here... Because
3: it's If you stay, because I've watched this town chew a lot of people up and spit them out. There's a lot of people that cannot get traction here. Why do you think that is? Just not supposed to be here. I love this town. It's been very good to me, and uh, I love being here and not doing anything here. I love just, uh, you know, on the rare occasion when I leave the house, my wife and I take walks almost every day. Just the feeling in this town is just stellar. Well, so now I have to ask you, why Citizen Forty Four?
0: You know Albertico Acosta? Happen to know? Okay. Yeah. This is in uh, 2006, maybe. He showed me a picture of him at two years old, with some swim trunks at the beach with the number 44 on the (laughs) swim trunks. I simply was not aware of this clearly before, but since that moment that I saw 44, it's been a very dominant symbol in my life.
3: Yeah, that's a phenomenon involving your brain. I did something very similar with the number 23, probably 1980. I read some book that had the number 23 figured very heavily, and they made all these references to how it appears everywhere. I started noticing this number. Truck would drive by 23 flavors. You said the word noticed. That's your reticular activating system monitoring the 7 billion bits of data bombarding your nervous system for seven relevant bits. I call it relevance for radar. And the thing that makes this so relevant in our lives is that. Whatever you assume to be true, you act like it's true, look for proof and find it so you can be right. That's called sanity, right? I must be sane because this all makes sense now. And that's your reticular activating system. And that's why conflict is so common is because if I'm only noticing the bits relevant to what I think is important and you're only noticing the bits relevant to what you think is important, we have conflict. The only way out of that is if you notice the bits I think are relevant to what you want also, where we're both paying attention to the whole story instead of just what's relevant to our own interests.
0: Yeah. Do you still have a number thing?
3: Well, you know, it's or the kind it of thing where if you quit caring about something, you stop noticing it. It ceased being important to me, and so I occasionally will see something. You like, smile when you see it, like, y- old oh, friend. Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah. And how long have you been married?
3: 28 years you got married here yeah i got married in lithia park i tried to make it here financially uh, back in the 80s when there was no insurance coverage for naturopathic medicine and ashland went into a recession twice in 83 and 85 and i saw patients for free because they didn't have any money and they weren't covered and i wound up going broke myself so i learned some good lessons from that and one is if you give from an empty cup it doesn't help anybody And that's when I realized, you know, I need to leave the valley to make money. I'm supposed to do this speaking and training thing. So I was a third year naturopathic medical student. And my academic dean asked me if I would go on a TV show to represent the school. I said, why me? He said, no one else is available. So I went on this TV show and it was called Town Hall. It was a moderated forum. There were about I think 70 invited guests representing different stakeholders in whatever the topic was. And that particular show was about alternatives in healthcare in Portland. So I'm there representing the school. And the moderator says, if there's anything you want to say, you should get your hand up in the first 20 minutes. Because the last 40 minutes of this show, everybody's going to have something they want to say. And we're not going to get to you. So I'm thinking, I should get in the line. So I put my hand up. Well, they call on me as he's opening the show. He hasn't even done his opening spiel yet. He goes, yes. And now I have two shotgun cameras racing in my direction. I totally blanked out. And I didn't even have anything I wanted to say. I was just getting in the line in case. Of... <laughs> so, So now I'm on camera in Portland at the front end of the show. And they're waiting for me to say something. And I've gone totally blank. I said something. I don't know what I said but whatever it was it got the attention of someone in the audience who at the time was the head of the OBGYN department in St. Vincent's Hospital and for the next 3 weeks he called the clinic where i was working to see if he could have lunch with me wanted to make a job offer to me because of something i said on the show that I, I don't even saw? know what it even is you know what you said no clue what wow. i said so after three weeks of putting this guy off, my lab director said, you have to take this call because we can't have this guy. He's disrupting everything around here. Take the call. Oh, my goodness. So I, I remember I'm standing in a hallway on a phone, on a corded phone. You know, I go, hello. He introduces himself to me, tells me what he does, says he wants to make me a job offer. I said, I'm not interested. He goes, we well, haven't even heard the offer. I said, I'm not interested. I'm a student. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not interested. I'm a parent. I have a child I never spend time with. I'm not interested. He says, would you at least meet with me to hear my offer? And I was like, I'm really not interested. He says, I'll buy lunch. I said, can I bring friends? (laughs) You know, as a student. So he said, sure. So I brought three friends with me (laughs) to this lunch. And two of them ate and left and one stayed. And the one that stayed was my best friend at the time, Rick Brinkman. And this guy says, you want to be a great doctor, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, there's two things you need to learn that you're not learning in school. And I'm like, who is this guy? He doesn't know what I'm learning in school. I was so flippant. I was like, yeah, like what? He goes, you'll need to learn how to listen and you'll need to learn how to talk. And I'm like, why? And he goes, because most doctors make their patients sick by the way they talk to them and most patients would get better if their doctors would just listen to them. And that's what they call the blinding flash of the obvious. And I was like, well, what do you have in mind? He says, well, I'd like to hire you as my physician's assistant. I said, what does that mean? He says, it means that if you want to do brain surgery, if I approve of it, you can go ahead and do it with the education you have right now. He says, you come to work for me of so much more power and authority than you'll have when you graduate as a naturopathic doctor. I'm like, why would you offer that to me? He said, because I heard what you said on that show. I said, I don't even know what I said on that show. He said, but it was really good. Anyway, he went back and forth and I explained to him I wasn't looking for a job. I was trying to survive. I just wanted to make it through school. I had a little kid at home and a marriage that was really on the rocks and, you know, How am I going to make it through this program as is? And now here's this guy wanting to throw something else on my plate. But he said, look, if you don't want to come to work for me, I understand. But let me be your mentor because I see your future better than you do. And I'm like, what would that involve? He says, I'll give you books to read, tapes to listen to. I'll send you to seminars and training programs. And Rick Brinkman was with me. And he says, and I'll do it for him too. So now I've got a buddy that I'm in school with. And this guy is giving us all this stuff to read and all this stuff to listen to. And he sends us to a 21-day residential training program in neurolinguistics from Bandler and Grinder. Anyway, it, it all came together in my brain as incredibly valuable for medical students and doctors. And Rick had the same reaction. And we thought, let's offer it to our classmates. Let's teach them what we've learned. And so we made a little flyer. I still have it. And we were, you know, felt awkward charging money to our classmates. So we put cost about $23. I swear to God. Oh, yeah. So how old were you? Probably 28. So we put a workshop together and half of the school showed up for it. And they loved it. It was a 10-weekend workshop. We're passing along a 21-day residential training program in 10 weekends. We tried to boil everything down to what was essential. and, And half the school came, and then the other half was like, well, we want to come too. Will you do it again? So we offered it a second time. And somebody from Western States Chiropractic College was visiting somebody in the class, said, can they come into the clinic? I'm like, yeah, okay came in for one class. They said, would you come teach this out at Western States? We're like, yeah, okay. So we went and taught at Western States, and a guy at Western States was being visited by a cousin who was in the aerospace industry, and he said, would you come teach this to my company? And we're like, oh. no, man, this is for doctors. He goes, no, man, this is for everyone. And another blinding Holy flash of the God, obvious. Dear. Yeah, so... One thing led to another, and I graduated in 81, and by 1984, I was making good money as a speaker and a trainer, and like I said, insurance coverage for Nature Paths was non-existent. So by 1986, the work that Rick and I were doing on the West Coast, kind of the word spread, and a training company in Colorado heard about what we were doing and asked us to submit our stuff, and we're like, what stuff what what does that even mean submit your stuff i mean honestly we were just trying to take one step after the next right. and with no big vision for any of this stuff so we called up a church in portland science of mind church that really loved our stuff and we said we'd like to film us doing our favorite bits it won't make a lot of sense but it'll all be fun could you get an audience together for us 250 people showed up for us and we just did our favorite bits and filmed it threw that in a box with all the letters people had sent us and sent it off to this company in Colorado and they hired us and they offered us the world they said we'll guarantee you 35 engagements minimum a year you get to keep all the frequent flyer miles all the hotel bonus points and we'll pay you and if you get spin off from that we'll charge more for the spin off and you can keep a percentage of that too it all sounded so good for a naturopath in Ashland Oregon who could barely make ends meet it right. sounded unbelievable yeah. so 1987 began my training career where now this company is flying me all over the world and advertising my work. They hired us, I think, in the summer of 86, telling us we'd begin in the spring of 87. And we get a call in, I think, November of 86 that they're having a big conference in January of 87 for the company, and they're asking all their training staff, which now includes us, to come to this conference, bring a suit, and six minutes of your best material because they want to film 55 trainers doing six-minute routines for promotional purpose and rick and i looked at each other like hmm where's the opportunity in this it sounds horrible the thought of listening to 55 six-minute bits from speakers who's going to pass the guns out you know so we're like where's the opportunity in this and we had this crazy idea let's ask if we can go last So they were like, sure. We can hear them laughing on the phone. Yeah, the new guys don't know what they're doing. So Rick and I took that as license that instead of doing one six-minute bit, we now had 12 minutes to work with because there's two of us. So we decided to do... Each other six-minute bits as a team, giving us 12 minutes total. Right. So we're breaking the rules. But at this point, nobody's talking to us. We're just making this up. We scripted out a 12-minute comedy routine that essentially ridiculed the way this company marketed its programs. (laughs) That's what we decided to go with. And it was really bad. And in this era, it would be so politically incorrect that you you couldn't get away with it. But back in those days, you could do things like bad Hispanic accents, for example. You know, because I grew up with Ed Sullivan and Jose Jimenez and all that kind of Of stuff. But the way we stuck to the rules was we broke it down into two six-minute routines so that we'd transition. So it was like, oh, it's not 12 minutes. You're just helping each other out. And when it was our turn, and we were right, the room was just dead they had started at eight in the morning and you look around the room and everybody is like sleeping there's no energy there nobody wants to hear anybody anymore it's just dead right and rick and i race up to our room we put on military fatigues castro hats on top of beetle wigs fake beards, mirrored sunglasses glued to the comedy noses, cigars in our mouth. We came down with a boombox playing Oyo Como Va, come marching in the room and got everybody singing along with us as we marched up on stage because we're singing on top of Oyo Como Va, these lyrics. Difficult people can be so difficult. Oh my God, over Oyo Komaba. Right. And everybody, and everybody's singing along as we get up on stage. The room's just snapped out of it, right? The room is alive. And we did a six-minute routine with heavy fake Hispanic accents, where one of us was named Fidel, the other was Juarez, and the conversation went, so these are the new recruits, see? well they look a little green to me, well that is why we call them gringos, and we did this for six minutes, and then at the six minute point, we peeled off the whole wig, beard, everything, threw it on the ground, and started with the words stop pretending, and then ridiculed their brochure. You know, like three ways to do this, the single best way to do that. You know, so we said, come to our seminar. You'll learn the single best response to sarcasm. And the other guy goes, I know you are, but what am I? You know, that kind of stuff. How to deal with a chronic complainer. Ch-ch-ch, you are the disease, I'm the cure. So we just did this kind of stuff for another six minutes and included an offer for the Ginsu knife, as I recall. And then marched off stage singing, Oyo the president of the company was a young guy in his early 30s, millionaire, because his company was so successful. And he's hyper intense. Everybody's terrified of this guy. And he's pacing in the foyer. He looks furious. And Rick and I look at each other like, we've just been fired. And we haven't even done anything for this company yet. Right. But we broke the rules. So we're going to be fired. And I actually said, Are we fired? And Jimmy looks at us and guess fired. Hell no. He said, they failed to mic you correctly and we didn't get any of that. So he was angry that he didn't get the PR material because there were two of us and they were only set up for talking heads. Uh-oh. And here we are moving around and doing all this stuff. So he didn't hear any of the ridicule? He just thought it was great and he was furious at his staff for not being smart oh, enough to goodness. adapt. And he spins around like... This all happened so fast. He said, I want a proposal on my desk by Valentine's Day. It was like January 6th. By Valentine's Day for an audio program on how to deal with difficult people. We're like, what? Because if you did an audio program with that company, they sold it in every training program. All the trainers would be selling that program. So the trainers would have killed And we haven't even worked for them yet, and they've now handed us one of the diamonds in their crown, their difficult people program, and just given it to us and said, do what you will with it, and we're going to sell it. So Rick and I are like, now what do we do? Where's the opportunity in this? We thought, let's make a comedy album. Let's make a really funny program that teaches people how to deal with difficult people. So we put things in it like uh, Darth Vader strangling a manager for not having the rebels on his desk by noon. uh, Leave it to Beaver. We just put all this weird stuff in the Beatles. Having a conversation in Beatle lyrics about, you know, between Paul and John about Ed Sullivan's show. I mean, just off-the-wall stuff. Were you guys high? No. Well, you know, who's to say? Okay. But... I will tell you that that program sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It was a Columbia House best-selling audio program. Wow. We did a, a special deal at one point with Larry King, or it was our program and his program in a bundle. I believe we stayed on the top ten list with Columbia House until, I don't even know if they're still around, but we're like number two, I Holy think. Holy cow, I know. man. And it's still happening because in 1990, Simon & Schuster came to us. At this company and they said we'd like you to do a book on this topic and so we worked up a draft and sent it in and waited 14 months to get edits back and when it came back 14 months later like we don't remember working on this anymore well, so we took our book back. We gave them their advance back and took a book away from Simon & Schuster. You Shuster. took a
0: book from Simon yeah. & and Schuster and gave them their money Gave them back. their money back. Because
3: it was so frustrating. 14 months. Oh, and they had a completely different vision for the book that would have made it so unpleasant to work on it. So we found an agent. We shopped it around. McGraw-Hill jumped on board, said, we'll get you published in a year. So that's what we did. And that book is in 26 or 27 languages. It's used in college courses all over the world, dealing with people you can't stand. It's in three revised editions. It's on iTunes as a special enhanced edition with audio and video in it. What's the video? Rick and I shot little video clips of Zeus and Hercules. and That was you guys? That was us. Yeah, we did it all. And uh, that was just number two on iTunes business book list uh, like two weeks ago. You're killing it. You've, you've been killing it. It was the gift that just kept on giving. Yeah. And... Who's that dude that started the whole thing? a doctor in Portland. Thank you, doctor. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's pretty amazing. So, aside from all this really cool training you got, you have some comedy background somewhere going on in the funny business stuff because you clearly incorporated that in your presentations.
3: Well, yeah. You know, my attitude about learning is if you're not having fun, you're probably not learning. Because if I'm not having fun, I'm definitely not learning. Yeah, for sure. So... My idea through all of my work has been to entertain myself with it. That if I'm not having fun, nobody else is going to have fun either. And I value fun. You know, fun and creativity are at the top of my values. So I just always use that as a way of organizing ideas, you know. What's the playful way of presenting something? Or where's the place where you'll laugh so hard you'll cry just noticing the truth of something? Right. I've probably done 1,000 speeches now on the topic and maybe a 1,000 training programs on that one topic. And then I really had to reinvent everything in 2003 because I had a bit of a falling out with my best friend at the time. Yeah. And the I, other Rick. The other Rick. Yeah. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to wrestle with him. I'd rather keep my 26 years of friendship with this guy. I'll just reinvent myself yeah. instead of lawsuits. I've never seen anybody going through a lawsuit that has anything about them that looks like they're having fun. To have 26 years of friendship ruined, turned into that... Just, I couldn't do it. I know, but
0: that's because you possess emotional maturity that most people do not.
3: Well, it's definitely helped me to think straight about something like that. And Rick and I are friends again, and we've done projects since. And, you know, everything turned out fine. Whereas if I would have gone down that other road, it would have killed something sure. that really meant some, meant a lot to me. So 2003 was when I started over on my own. And that was The Art of Change. That's where I let go of the illusion that I had a partner, because Rick and I are already working independent of each other most of the work we were doing. But 2003, I just let go of the whole idea that it was the two of us against right. the world and decided, what do I really want to have my work be about? And the answer came back s- straight up. I want it to be about changing the world, changing our lives. and want it to be about positive change. Yeah. So that was what The Art of Change was about.
0: Well, I was honored to do your brand. It's cool that we got to be introduced that way.
3: And brilliant what you made. I mean, really, it just makes me happy. To this day, if I see that logo, I feel so good inside. Where
0: did you grow up?
3: Well, I'm originally from Cincinnati. Can't say I grew up there, but I I came out to California in 1967 for the Summer of Love. How old were you at that time? Uh, I think I was uh, either, yeah, I was just short of 18. How was school for you? I was in trouble all the time. I, I went to a lot of high schools. Um, you went
0: to a lot of high schools. I did, and this is instances.
3: Yeah, very difficult teenager. I wrecked a lot of cars. Uh, very impulsive. Very emotionally immature, and. Big ideas. You know, I remember I wrote a book of poetry when I was 13 years old, 114 pages, but then a girl stole it and I never got it back. So I was in trouble a lot. And it was in that turbulent time, you know, the 50s and 60s, the world was undergoing major changes. And the joke I used to make to my audiences was that I had two perfectly good parents and I pretty much ruined them. You know, I really gave him a hard time and was not aware that I was doing that, just being myself. And the good news is that I was able to build an incredible relationship with my parents as an adult that I didn't have as a kid. And in fact, after my mom passed away, the last few years of my father's life, I can honestly say we left nothing unsaid. Every time I had a gig anywhere east of the Rockies, I'd go to Cincinnati and spend a couple of days to a week with my family. And so I really got to know them because I was traveling so right, much right. all through the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, so we made peace with all of that stuff. I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but I wish I could have been less narcissistic as a kid and seen what my parents were seeing and heard what they were hearing. I wish I would have known the things I know now then for the quality of relationship we could have had. Yeah, but it ended up good. Everything that happened had to happen. Of course, yeah. And do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have an older sister and a younger brother. How are they doing? Uh, They stayed close to home. They didn't have that uh, I-got-to-get-out-of-here thing going on like me. What did they end up doing? Uh, My sister runs her own business. Uh, My brother's retired He was in advertising for a long time. Uh, My sister's in a recycling business. Sandy's had a farm for the longest time in Kentucky. At at one point, she and I owned a farm together. Um, Like a farm
0: with animals? Yeah, yeah.
3: Ah. When I decided to do something with my life...
0: How old were you when uh, you decided to
3: do that? Probably 24. Okay. I decided, you know, it's time to start figuring out what I want to do with my life. And I went back to... Maybe I was a little younger than that. Went back to the Cincinnati area, and my sister and I bought a big 55-acre spread together and started making payments on it. And she raised horses, and I grew vegetables and fruit. And I did my pre-med at Northern Kentucky University. And so I did get to have a life back there. That's pretty interesting. When I started my pre-med, I remember I moved off the farm, and I just gave it to my sister. I just walked away.
0: How did that come about? Because clearly your record of <laughs> attendance and, yeah. and things must yeah. have been a little odd to look at. A little this. odd. Yeah.
3: Well, uh, so one of the things that I did, and it really probably was a turning point for me in my life, was uh, when I was living in California, the draft board started looking for me. So I had to go back to Cincinnati. And my parents found me, and once I completed all that you know, physical and all that kind of stuff, My father made me this offer. He said, you know, your brother went to Israel and really likes it. And it helped him get his life together. If you want to go, you put the trip together and I'll pay for it. So I I was bored. My life really didn't make a lot of sense to me at that point in time. I'd already decided I wasn't going to be a rock and roll star because the industry in Hollywood was so disgusting.
0: But you were a music guy.
3: I did try for a rock career, yeah. When I went to California for the summer of love. Yeah. Uh, I stayed out there. You said that was 67? Yeah. Yeah. And I decided, you know, I was a songwriter in high school. And yeah. so I thought, I'm going to see if I can become a star out here. And I went in every record company. I got kicked out of every record company. I remember getting carried out practically out of the Capitol Records <laughs> building. Because, you know, how's he going to do it? They got to knock on doors, yeah. got to get in to yeah. see somebody. Yeah. So I really went for it. And I found a record company that was willing to do a deal with me. I think they were called Vance Records, and it was started by a guy whose dad was really rich and let his kid make a record company. And who did they have on their label at the time? Milton Berle and the guy that wrote, I'm in with the in crowd. There's two. And I'd be somebody there, you know, if I could do something worthwhile. And they asked my father to come and co-sign the contract because I was not 21 yet. I was 18 years old. So my dad came out to California, and he met the people not the Vance people, but this producer I'd been working with. And he walks me out in the hallway and he says, these people don't care about you. He says, they're going to chew you up and they're going to spit you out. And if you have any intelligence, you will walk away from this before it's too late. And then my dad left and left me standing there thinking about that. And I'm looking around and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I think he's right. But I didn't want to let it go. I tried to, to hang in there a little longer and then my producer offered me heroin. And that was the thing that confirmed what my dad said. And I left. I left Hollywood at that point. He was dead on correct. He totally nailed it. Anyway, so I wound up uh, going to Israel and had a really great time there. Had a girlfriend there. Came back home and did the farm thing with my sister and still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And then the Yom Kippur (laughs) War broke out and I felt like I wanted to get back to Israel because I knew people there, and that war was devastating, everybody lost somebody. So I flew back to Israel. It took me three weeks to get into Israel. I had spent most of that in Paris. I finally get into Israel, and the whole country is depressed. Everybody has lost somebody in the Yom Kippur War. The rains are relentless. Agriculture has come to a complete stop. And I find myself in a vegetarian village in the mountains of Svad, living in a little cabin behind somebody's house. They were nice enough to let me have the cabin. And the only job available in that little town was working for the village doctor, who was a naturopath, an huh. 83-year-old woman named and uh, from originally from Hungary or Romania, I forget. And Roma could run circles around me intellectually. She was physically, had more strength and durability than me. She grew all of her own medicines. There were people lining up at her door every day that she treated. I could see what she was doing. I could hear the reactions she was getting from people. People were getting healed by this simple little lady growing her own medicines. My whole idea of medicine came together watching Roma. And I remember thinking, man, I wish she could still learn stuff. like this. this is so old school, right? Now modern medicine has taken over. You can't do any of this right. stuff. I came back to the United States. I was in a health food store in Cincinnati, in Clifton. And I ran into Ginger Restemeier, the little sister of a guy I played rock and roll with in high school. And she had uh, papers under her arm. And I just said, "Hey, what's that? And she said, oh, I'm applying to a naturopathic medical school in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, the light bulb that goes on in your brain... That was my light bulb moment. I was like, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. That's how it all happened. So they told me, well, you need pre-med to get in. So that's when I went to school and moved off the farm and on and on and on.
0: You've had a lot of light bulb popping things. <laughs> had
3: up had a lot of mom. moments, yeah. yeah. So you were in a rock band in high school? Yeah. What's your instrument? Uh, I play guitar. And in fact, that's what I've been doing in my retirement is playing my guitar hours a day now. It's the greatest thing to be able to play again. I was the lead singer in a band called Jonathan and What's Left. Jonathan and What's Left? Yeah. How'd that come about? Uh, Everybody got in a band before I did. So I changed my name to Jonathan Armitage.
0: Oh, my God. Armitage? Yeah, Jonathan. How'd you come up with that? (laughs)
3: It sounded so good.
0: Really, then?
3: Wow, you were young. <laughs> it did. It sounded so good to me. Right. So sophisticated. Jonathan Armitage. Well, where did Armitage come from? I probably met somebody that had it or saw it on a piece of furniture. I really wow. don't know. Uh, so we, we called ourselves Jonathan and What's Left and did Battles of the Band and all that. That sounds fun. It was very fun. Was that the end of your rocking out? Was high school? Uh, well, the little bit of time in California and... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, when I first came to Ashland, I remember there was a taco place on the main street, and they would have like an open mic night on, maybe it was Tuesday nights or something, a long time ago. It was back in the 80s, early 80s. I wish I could remember the name of that place. But anyway, I played in there. I've got photographs of me playing guitar in there with a band. So, you know, I did play here for a little while, but then I just gave it up completely. And the big advantage of being retired is I I play my guitar for hours every day now. How fun. Oh, my God. I just love playing guitar. And what I particularly love about playing my guitar is that, you know, when I was in high school, you've learned to play by listening to others and imitating them, right? right. So my whole repertoire was Stones and early Beatles and The Who when they came out and anything Clapton was involved in. Right. We listened to those songs and tried to imitate them but I didn't know what I was doing. I did everything by ear. So I I never really knew the names of the strings or what chord progressions were, or I was just in the moment playing the guitar with no clue why it worked. But I got pretty good at, you know, I could play lead guitar with on top of any song. I could hear it and I could find it, but I didn't know anything about it. So what's cool is now we live in the age of information and there are all these online programs that you can sign up for, for like 10 bucks where you You can have hours and hours of training with a qualified teacher... So I bought like four of these courses. So if I get bored with the one guy, I'll try another guy or another until I find one. That's the lesson for me today. And so as a result now, I'm learning the names of all the notes on the fretboard. I'm learning all the movable shapes. I'm learning pentatonic major and minor. I'm learning all this theory stuff. It's mathematically mesmerizing. Uh. The guitar neck is so cool the way it's laid out. And I didn't know any of that. So I'm just... Now you're a bit more
0: excited because it's all new Every
3: single day, I pick up the guitar and I just want to get good at one thing. So it's very cool. It's good
0: to be a teenager again, isn't it? It
3: is. It's pretty good. It is. I feel like I've literally returned to where I left off when I took my life seriously. Wow.
0: So how did you meet Linda?
3: Oh, gosh. Uh, One of the greatest things that happened in my life. So back in the mid-1980s, I was asked to be a trainer for a personal awareness type thing in California. You know, there were a lot of those going around back in the 80s. Yeah. You had asked, Life LifeSpring, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this one was called the Sage Experience. They had always had a male trainer and a female trainer. And they asked me if I would be the male trainer for some of their training programs. And... They had a big support community around them and support staff where people would volunteer their time every time they do one of these programs. And it was, I think, a four-day program, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, something like that. And so I agreed to do these trainings for SAGE, and Lindea was one of the support people for one of the trainings. Yeah. And at that particular training, I couldn't find anybody to take care of my daughter because I was a single dad raising my kid by myself for a while. And I couldn't find anybody to take care of Aiden, so I had to take her with me to this training program. And not only did I have to take her with me, but I needed her to be in the room. And so I put her in the training. And she was the youngest person in the room, obviously, by 30 years, except for one other kid, a 15-year-old, whose parents couldn't find anything to do with him. So they made him take the training. Uh And so somehow my daughter and this kid wind up in the same group. Probably because they're the two youngest people, somebody thought, well, of course they'd like to be together, which for her was not true. Right. She couldn't stand that kid. Right. But anyway, um, Linda was the staff person assisting the group my daughter was in. And my daughter fell Head over heels in love ah, with her. interesting. And so that she fell in love first. She fell in love first. Huh. And so we go back to the hotel room and she's going on and on about Lindea this and Lindea that. And I'm like, what is a Lindea? And it's so like, you know, she's this person that she's met and she yeah. just got stars and in old her eyes. daughter at the time? I think she was eight or nine. So Lindea's best friend had a crush on me at the time. And my daughter had a thing for Lindea. Somehow that constellation led me and my daughter at a dinner table with Lindea and her best friend. And I think Lindea decided that I was just a, a jerk. And I think I decided she was gay. <laughs> so we really didn't connect at all that dinner. Well, you did. Not in a good way, though. <laughs> right. But on the Sunday night of that training, everybody's supposed to dress up. They have a big celebration. And when Dea showed up in this gorgeous blue dress, it made her eyes, like, from another world. I remember watching her moving through the room, and I, w- I was like in a hypnotic trance. Nice. So we danced at the thing, and we had a nice connection. And then we decided, let's get together when I come through California, doing a training program. I'll call you up, we'll get together. And So every time I did a training program in California, and especially as my career started to take off, I had opportunity to go down there. And then she knew people up here in, in uh, Mount Shasta, So sometimes she'd be just across the border. We'd arrange to meet somewhere. And one day, Lindea came up to Ashland, and we were in Lithia Park. You know where there's that curvy bridge towards the front of the park? Well, I can't remember what that bridge looked like before they put that thing in, but there was a bridge there before that thing that wasn't quite so curvy. And I remember standing on that bridge with Lindea, just looking down at the creek, and there was a bird hopping on the stones and it tickled her and she had this laugh that was like music to my ears and honestly i just thought we were very dear friends and she decided she had to follow the bird to see where it was going and she walks down into the creek and she's following behind and this bird is doing this little curtsy curtsy hop 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 curtsy curtsy hop 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 and making its way up the creek and linda is you know 20 feet behind and she's just so tickled And I'm watching all this, and all of a sudden, I was just overcome with this feeling that I could not bear the thought of living my life without her in it. So I proposed. Right there? No. But I prepared to propose. I knew I was going to be in uh, Long Beach. And I knew they had a place called Venice Beach nearby. And that I could do a whole thing on a gondola. I had this whole plan. I was going to go down there and do a training program. And we'd meet afterwards. I'd take her out on a gondola. I'd propose to her. But the second I put a foot on that gondola, I said, will you marry me? (laughs) My whole plan just fell apart. I didn't mean for it to happen. It just came pouring out of me. And she said she needed to think about it. How did you
0: feel in that moment?
3: Uh, well, first of all, because I had a past wife experience, I think it it was very prudent of her not to just oh, make yeah. a snap decision. Yeah. And I was very hopeful because she had expressed such an interest in me right up until that moment. Right. And so a year passed. A whole year? A whole year passed.
0: Did you guys see each other Oh, yeah. Hair? Yeah. And was it, like, uncomfortable? <laughs> no, not really. Well, it's not like you saw her go you're waiting
3: like (laughs) but it was like she was so interested in me until i asked her to marry me and she's like i don't know and then a year passed and then she's like yeah okay and she's smart in every way imaginable i can't believe how lucky i am everybody that knows lindea says i need a lindea in my life you know she's just that kind of person i might be the happiest husband on earth you know uh I always think that if it's a good marriage, you turn out better as a result of being in it. I am so much better of a person because I'm married to her. I had this idea from the moment she said yes to me that... I wanted to be so worthy of her yes. And I knew I had a lot of work to do on myself to measure up to what I thought she deserved.
0: And did you go through some metamorphosis in that Oh year? my
3: goodness, I totally transformed in, in the presence of my marriage. And it's so worth it to me. I, Whenever uh, any of my students get married, I always say, I hope you find as much happiness as I found. You know, I can't believe how lucky. I mean, I feel like in Jewish, we got a thing called Shlemiel Shlemazel. So the Shlemiel is the one that no matter Hard they try, nothing works out. the right. shlemazel, no matter how stupid they are, everything works yeah. out wonderfully. Yeah. I'm a total shlemazel in my career, my marriage. I, I feel like no matter what I've done, it's worked out great. So, were you raised Jewish? Yeah. Your mom and dad
0: did the things oh, for your yeah. Bar Mitzvah?
3: Yeah. I in fact uh, I was the designated Jew in my family.
0: Designated <laughs> yeah. Jew. Yeah. Somebody you had to go to shul, yeah. Did you guys go to like Friday night services? And
3: all? No, but our synagogue was at the end of our block. It yeah. moved into our neighborhood when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. So uh, I walked to shul every Saturday. and Was there a lot of Jews in your hood? Big Jewish community. Um, my dad grew up in Newport, Kentucky, where there were uh, Nazi bund meetings all around his neighborhood. Oh, yeah. So you took it pretty seriously. Well, they took it pretty seriously that I should take it seriously. I see. So, you know, and I didn't mind going to synagogue on Saturday morning, even though I was young, right. f- because of two things. One, there were girls there, which made it, Very interesting to me and the other was that i was little and they would do the kiddish at the end with the schnapps in the little cup and i'm a little guy so i could get in between all these grown-ups and knock back 10 of those things oh yeah i get how old were you i was like you know 12 years old 13 years old that's what a great and then i'd stagger home and fall asleep oh my god so So saturday i'm gonna get drunk and then taking a nap and biscuits and cookies too oh my goodness and your so, friends had no idea that you were coming home wasted? Well, they knew I was sleeping every time I no, came home. but did they didn't get that? They didn't don't put think two and so. together? I don't think so. They
0: didn't put Jew and Jew together? No. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Was your first wife Jewish? Uh, yeah. Did you meet her in uh, a Jewish thing?
3: Uh, well, she's from Cincinnati, and her family, my family, and my brother's <laughs> wife's family were all very connected. Oh. All these crossover things. How oh, long were you married? Uh, seven years. Well, you know, when I graduated in 1981, my marriage ended a week later. Why? It's just the way it happened. Medical school's tough on marriage. We were very young. And, you know, we didn't get married because of ideas of what we wanted in life. We got married because of superficial programming we received about what to look for. You know, I always thought the important thing was, is she Jewish? If the answer is yes, that's a good wife, that kind of thing. Yeah. And having had that experience... I learned a lot about what I didn't want but still didn't know what I did want and I was a single guy here in Ashland for a while and I was raising a kid and dating every once in a while and I hated dating because it was expensive emotionally and it was expensive financially and anyway I remember one more time, tried dating somebody for two or three weeks and it fell apart and it was ugly. And a woman who cut hair here in Ashland, uh, Jeanette Migalucci. I don't know if you ever met Jeanette. She used to cut hair here and she was great at cutting hair. And she cut my hair and she took great care of me. And Migalucci, did they? Migalucci, yeah. Some children? Oh, uh, yeah. What the, what the, Olivia. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. She
3: babysat
0: my kids.
3: There you go. So her mom cut hair here and cut my hair through my all those years doing training. And We've developed such a friendship, and I was there for her through some things, and so she saw me going through this dating thing and felt terrible for me, because she cared about me. And right after the one of them broke up, she said, I want you to meet me for lunch. I have something to tell you. Remember, we're sitting in a booth. Uh, she, I might have been at um, Callahan. And she says, uh, I'm going to tell you what your problem is and why you're unhappy in your dating life. And... I'm going to give you some advice. I'm like, fire away. She said, you think that if you're sexually attracted to somebody, they're potentially a good partner for you, right? And I said, well, yes. Isn't that the way you decide that? She said, here's a new idea. Why don't you try deciding if you like someone as a person before you like them as a sexual partner? I was like... I tried doing that, and that's when Lindea showed up in my life. No kidding. Yeah, and I loved the person of Lindea. Absolutely thought this is the most high-quality human being I've ever met, male or female. I didn't really see her any other way for the longest time until I asked her to marry me. And then I remember in our wedding ceremony... I had all these criteria that I used to evaluate a partner, and that's how I got married, was all checked off all the boxes. She's right. Jewish, she's got dark hair, she's got, you know, all these kind right. of things that I thought were important. So when I married Linda, I put all that aside. I was like, I'm putting that, that whole checklist is going away now. But I tell you, Mark, I'm standing there, and Arya asks, you know, do you take whatever? It was like, they, I think uh, the biblical expression is the scales fell from my eyes. As I'm saying I do and looking at Lindea, for the first time, I saw who she was in her fullness and realized she was everything I had ever, ever wanted in a, in a relationship. Wow. All my check boxes wound up ticked off and I didn't even know until that moment. So...
0: That's like a yeah. spiritual awakening. Yeah,
3: I had a it was one it was one of those moments like I had not even seen
0: Wow, that's really a... See, I don't know anybody who could say anything remotely like that. My story is the opposite of yours. It's literally the George Costanza opposite of your story. I married my ex-wife now, who was not Jewish, who loved me so much that she went to the University of Judaism for 13 weeks. Oh my goodness! For me because my parents wanted me to marry someone who's going to have Jewish kids. Right. And then the cosmic fucking beautiful joke was my wife couldn't get pregnant. So I had to adopt kids. Wow. God's comedy fucking cast down upon this family. <laughs> now, of course, we're not married because it was completely irresponsible of me in some ways to even get caught up in such a thing that I had no awareness This about.
3: programming. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank God we still have a reasonable relationship because we are raising two children. Yeah, good. And I have two absolutely incredible, wonderful children. And I thank her for anything good that she does, really, honestly.
3: It's the way it ought to be.
0: But your story is fantastic and two people can get together and it can work because you had to fail first to see a part of your life kind of cut away
3: i did no question about it i i needed the lesson and that's
0: the building blocks of being able to build yourself up emotionally intelligently enough To take on a real relationship where you can have some success.
3: And, you know, I've learned a few things along the way about relationships that I've been able to pass along to other people. And one of them, uh, as a speaker, you're drawn to models, things that reduce the world's complexity to simple memes, like there's four ways to do this and two ways to do that. You know, I've been collecting models for my whole speaking career about all these things that we're able to do. and. I have a model for relationship now. And I think this originally came from Leslie Cameron Bandler, the ex-wife of one of the founders of neuro-linguistic programming. Leslie said that relationships move through five stages. And the first stage is attraction. Second stage is affection. And that's where you hang out with that person you're attracted to and you start to go, hey, you know, I really, really enjoy my time with you. I really care about you. Yeah. And... Those two stages of relationship are where it's hot and it's happy and it's happening. Sure. The third stage is the expectation stage. Mm. And that's where, you know, well, this is how it was in the attraction and affection stages. Remember when you used to rub my shoulders when I'd come home? Yeah. I remember I used to always tell you me yeah. you love me. Remember the expectation phase of a relationship is where all the things that got you there, you expect them to continue and they don't, because people change, life changes, everything (laughs) changes, which leads to the fourth stage of disappointment, because if you have an expectation, you're capable of being disappointed.
0: Well, that is the setup. eh? (laughs) That's a rule. That's that's universal law.
3: Exactly. So you go from expectation to disappointment, and disappointment leads to dissolution. So the question is, how do you avoid that? And the answer is you stay in the first two stages, attractive, and affectionate. And that's it. You don't go to expectations. So my math in my relationship has always been, how do I be worthy of this incredible woman Mm -hmm. rather than what does she have to do to make me happy? And one of the things that comes with being affectionate towards somebody is loving them for who they are, not for who they were. Unconditionally. Exactly. And wanting them to have everything they want for themselves. So. You know, Linda and I have different interests. We're not the same person at all. Uh, I play guitar. I like loud music. I love science fiction and superheroes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Lindé is very peaceful and quiet. She likes the company of quiet people and very balanced person. So, you know, I can't watch Star Trek with her can't go to a superhero movie with her and people are like well what do you do together i'm like we don't do much together but whatever we do together we're really together when we do it but more importantly i think that successful relationships are built on shared values not shared interests absolutely no question that's it
0: that's it it. i I totally agree with you honestly that's why i'm not married that's a deal breaker yeah and if somebody's going through a metamorphosis and their value systems are changing and that other person is Being left back there, it's hard to come back to that. Yes, it is. And that's what happened to me, flat out. Yep. I went through a metamorphosis when I moved to this town. I couldn't go back to something that was not me anymore. Mm -hmm. And she's part of what was me. Mm -hmm. But she was back there, and she wasn't doing the work I was doing. That's not her fault, my fault. It's not a thing.
3: Just is what it is. But I
0: just went down a different path, and I was alone. And I couldn't see going back to a different path that no longer worked. for me. Yeah, I get that. You know, your talk about expectation is one of the most important things that every human being needs to be aware of. Expectation is at the top every single thing up every relationship yep. we ever have. We've yep. got marriage, just relationships yep. with anything, animals, plants, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We expect a certain thing, and when it doesn't go our way, we are crushed. If you expect nothing, you will never be disappointed, and you eliminate about 95% of your avoidable suffering you control that whole thing nobody is doing anything to you forcing anything on you but if you don't know That's why I love everybody, because I can't punish people for what they don't know. It's, you know, what is the horrible phrase? Ignorance is bliss. That's fucking bullshit. Ignorance is horrible, (laughs) because it's why we are where we are in the world, because people are improperly educated, and they don't know what they need to know to operate at a super high level, and that's ignorance, and that ignorance is painful. It's horrible. Yep. And you talked about it earlier, which was your prime subject matter, which
3: is what now again? Dealing with people you can't stand.
0: And you literally had like a videotape that says on the front, (laughs) dealing with people you can't stand. Yeah. What's the best way around that? Because we all have people in our lives, although I don't anymore, really, because I think there's a law of attraction there that we bring people to us until we learn a lesson, that we constantly get bombarded with the same opportunity to figure something out mm-hmm. until we do or we don't mm-hmm. in this particular experience
3: in psychology it's called the unfinished gestalt you just keep recreating it until you resolve it and then it goes away
0: exactly yeah but the question is how long do you perpetuate the self-torment and not coming to terms and dealing with something appropriately before you do and what can people do as an exercise even from the time they wake up in the morning What can people do to eliminate a lot of this unnecessary suffering?
3: There are some basic rules of human relationship. And one of them is, uh, whatever you assume to be true, you act like it's true. Look for proof so that you can be right. That's an important thing to know about because it's self-defeating. If you're always looking for proof of things that make you crazy, make you miserable, make you unhappy, you will find that proof because your brain is organized to do this for you. It's your reticular activating system system. Uh, your spotlight for relevance, your radar for relevance—that's your conscious mind. Your reticular activating system is a group of cells in your brain stem that. If I remember correctly, it's like 70% of the functional neurons in your brain are packed into this area in your brainstem. And the sole function of that area is to monitor reality for relevance, things that you think are important. Whatever you assume to be true, you will find proof of it. And it's easy to find proof because we're bombarded by so much information all the time. Seven billion bits of sensory data... And you're only paying attention to 7 out of 7 billion. All the rest of that is available for your relevance radar to go, oh look, over there. We all have it. So then the question becomes well, how do I use this mechanism to my advantage? And I say, well there's two kinds of assumptions, useful and limiting. Limiting assumptions are the ones you get to be right about and they make you miserable. Useful assumptions take you where you want to go. You're going to make assumptions. We have to make assumptions. It's part of growing up. When you're a baby, you have no assumptions about any Anything. The world is all sensory data and no relevance. So that's why, you know, your heads are bobbling and you sleep all the time. It's overwhelming. It's just onslaught of sensory information. Little by little you tease it apart and make sense of it until you've got your spotlight, your seven plus or minus bits of conscious awareness. And from that point on, all you look for is evidence of things you're deciding are true. So in relationship with any human being, the question becomes, what is the useful assumption rather than the one I get to be right about? So when people say, oh, he's a jerk, I'm like, is that useful to you? If that's taking you where you want to go, great, think of him as a jerk. But if it's making you crazy, change your assumption, and maybe there's a way of interacting with them that's more rewarding. So... I always say the one useful assumption is people are doing the best they can with the limited resources they have on board. That's a great thing to know about people. When somebody's screaming and hollering and throwing a fit at the Medford Airport, who's supposed to be some big guru that knows everything about it, and he's on the phone and he's cussing out somebody on the other it's not because he's an, an evil person or a bad person. That's the best choice he has in that situation, he, in that moment. moment yeah. And that's why he's doing that. And if he had a better choice, he would make that better choice.
0: Or, or he didn't know that he could make a different choice, and he just didn't execute it.
3: Or, or he didn't have one. Because I think our nervous system gravitates towards our better choices. If I've got three choices and one of them's better, my nervous system's going to pick that one. Right. But if I don't know I have that third choice, I have to pick one of the ones I do. I so, for example, if um, if you have one choice when things don't go your way, and that's to get angry, what must you do when things don't go your way? Get angry. You got to get angry. Yeah. There's no alternative there. I always tell people, learn at least a second bad behavior. Well, see, learn how to whine. Uh, because if anger or whining are your two choices... Whining is certainly much softer. And you've got a choice. Yeah. Now, throw a third choice in, and all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, I guess there's no limit to how many choices I can have. So the useful hmm. assumption is... People do bad things for good reasons. And if you can identify a good reason behind a difficult behavior, you can engage with it. Mm-hmm. So if you assume, for example, that somebody that's being pushy is just trying to make something happen, well, you can engage with them around making something happen. It might not be the thing they want, but it'll have some happen to it. Right. and That's what matters to right. them. Somebody that's always finding fault and being negative, you know, calling them negative may not be the most useful assumption. The useful assumption might be they don't want mistakes, they're avoiding mistakes, they're yeah. terrified of mistakes. You can join with them in avoiding mistakes. Somebody who lets you down, who doesn't follow through. Why do people make promises and not keep them? Why do people have trouble deciding whether they're yes or no? And the answer is for a lot of people, it's because we don't feel safe and we're not coherent in our thinking. That's why we don't follow through. And that's why we say yes and don't, you know, I say, sure, I'll take care of that. And I never think of it again. It's because I didn't make a plan for it. I wasn't organized in my thinking. An organized person, you say, can you do me a favor? They go, what is it? A disorganized person, you say, will you do me a favor? And if they're nice, I go, sure, what is it? So, you know, the useful assumption is always, what's the good intent driving the bad behavior that gives me a way of engaging with that person and getting a better result? Another useful assumption is that nobody cooperates with anyone who seems to be against them. So if you want to get a a result with people that completely disagree with you, like on politics, for example, you've seen how crazy people have been since this last election. I've never seen society just lose its brain the way we seem to have in this country, and especially around here. We've got people that I used to think of as pretty good thinkers, and they have lost their minds. Yeah, pretty interesting. And meanwhile, Donald Trump got elected, and he's still the president. How does that serve you to be insane about reality?
0: It doesn't serve anybody.
3: It really doesn't.
0: And it's a distractive mechanism from coming back to self anyway. This whole thing is kooky pants. You can't get caught up in it. It's...
3: I always tell people politics is a great example of stuff we can't talk about without conflict. Because unless we completely agree, it's so easy to become tribal about one issue. And then if you see it that way, I see it this way, we have nothing more to talk about. that's the right
0: principle like you just talked about.
3: Exactly. Needing to be right. A lot of that involved in politics. Oh, my God. As a matter of fact, I think it actually is the driving force in politics. Very likely is. It's how they've managed to polarize everything. The middle disappears when all you're doing is looking for proof. i'm no longer sure what politics is about but i'll tell you this if i want to persuade you to vote my way on an issue i better understand what matters to you about that issue all you're doing is feeding the narrative of the other side of the spectrum and the divisions are getting deeper and wider and we're all going to pay the price for that here's an idea calm down do what jeff golden used to talk about i don't know if you remember jeff uh maybe five six eight years ago Tried to start an initiative around here, take a bonehead to lunch. I don't remember if it was bonehead or meathead. Whatever it was, it was basically take somebody that disagrees with you politically to lunch and find out what it's all about. Because until we start talking with each other, all we're left with is yelling at each other. I don't want my daughters family to have to grow up in a world like that. You don't want your kids to grow up in a world. So that's on us. And this is the moment when I think society's either going to wake up and face the future, or we're going to keep trying to back into it. And Uh, I'm a big fan of Bucky Fuller, and Bucky said all of human history consists of people doing the same things over and over in new and better ways while backing into the future by fighting and withdrawing from the things they don't want. That is no way to build a better world. You have to face the future if you want a better one. And we haven't done that. No.
0: Everything is reactionary. It took me 40 years and moving to this fucking town before I stopped doing that. I believe you thank goodness I decided to break the generational behavior pattern. And so my children, they can look at that and go, yeah, that's what man used to look like. Man used to have no patience, no calmness, no reasonability, no emotional intelligence. And now we do, because (laughs) finally, in school, we learn how to think, not what to think. We're We're taught how to be introspective. We're taught how to contemplate instead of react.
3: What school is this?
0: It's not here yet. Okay. This is the school I dream of. It's a good school? For my
3: children. I'd love to have that school. Those are just
0: the fundamentals of school and then by the time they're out of middle school, there's no more high school. Go see the world, dude. Go travel all over the world. Do what you want. Paint, help people, feed people, build things, do whatever you want. That's what makes everybody happy. So I see, because I'm a fucking idiot. But I know that we can do this so much better with just a better fundamental start. And until we decide that we are worth training as well as we train to kill, that we're worth training to love and be with each other, then we will continue backing into this thing and keep burning our asses on the sun. It's perplexing to me seeing the truth that I think that I know in front of me, which plays out to just an unimaginable world of incredibleness. Yep, yep. Is, I tell my kids, we could be traveling five million miles an hour by now if we gave a shit about each other. Yeah. Yeah. And until we give a shit about each other, we're not going to give a shit about the animals. We're not going to give a shit about the plants, the oceans, the mountains, nothing. Until I love you unconditionally, I cannot love everything else. It, it, it just can't happen. So I'm grateful for my kids that I'm their father. Not that I'm some big fucking wisdom whiz but I know enough things that I've talked to them for the past 10 years that now I can trust that they're thinking
3: Mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, is it meant to be resolved? And the older I get, the more I see that this world is set up as a character test for every single one of us, and it wouldn't work if everything worked. No, there'd be no contrast either. There'd be no contrast, no pleasure in it. Yeah. But the world is set up this way, and it goes all the way back through history. It's been set up this way, and I'm pretty sure we're supposed to try, but we are not going to succeed at saving the future for ourselves, but we're supposed to try
0: Larry David, I think, is one of the most intelligent men on the planet. You know who Larry David is, right?
3: I know. It's Bernie Impression and uh, Seinfeld. Yeah.
0: He has a show called Curb Your
3: Enthusiasm. I've heard of it.
0: My impression of this television show is the same way that the world was set up. There is an outline for us. There is a scenario that's been created. We have a world that's got all the things that we need. But we get to be who we are in this outline. No one's giving us a script. No one's telling us what to say. We can do whatever we want. Well, that's how Curb Your Enthusiasm is made. He's got an outline of the show, but he doesn't tell you what to say or do. It's up to you as as a, an actor. Oh, wow. To portray yourself and say anything you want really? based on the other character. It's almost all 100% improv.
3: Oh my gosh! I didn't know that.
0: This is a uh, you know a high level award winning <laughs> yeah, program yeah. that broke the mold of most anything that's ever been made. And they're improv. We've been given this beautiful outline. We've been given all the resources we could ever want or ever need to do anything we could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Literally anything we can imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's literally up to us. People say, ah, life pushes you around. No, (laughs) we can even change the weather. We can do anything we want, literally.
3: I have a memory of Donovan playing at the Hollywood Bowl in 1960, was it 67 or 68? And it started raining. And he told the audience, we can make it stop. If we just hold that thought together, everybody... Start clapping. We're going to make the rain, and it stopped. Of course. So, you know. 44. Yeah, there you go. But
0: people don't understand really how, number one, how powerful they are. I think we're living such a low-frequency pedestrian experience Mm -hmm. currently. So I want you to think about your right hand. And when you feel something in your right hand, raise your left hand. Okay. Think about your left foot. When you feel something in your left foot, raise your right hand. What did you just do effortlessly?
3: felt something and raised my hand.
0: You moved your energy at will, Mm -hmm. wherever you wanted to, like that. So imagine you're a child in school and you're learning about this. And if it takes 15,000 hours to become genius at something, what could you do potentially if you spent 15,000 hours practicing and working with your energy like you just did? It's unimaginable, right? I did this in a class full of leadership students at the Mm. middle school. By the end of my (laughs) little demonstration, which none of them have ever been exposed to before, there were 10 boys in the back at a round table trying to move a piece of popcorn, just like your codger was trying to stop the rain. We have given no power to our people to see how Mm -hmm. powerful we are. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is part of our suffering, is we don't even know what we can do. And we're just so caught in this bullshit little world that we've created, and we created it. No one imposed anything on us. We've created everything that we have. But there's such an inequality in the world, and there's so many people that don't have what they absolutely need. It's very hard to get to that place of experimenting with your energy. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we're just not teaching children what this is. So they don't know. Not there yet. I do have some alignment with your, maybe we're not supposed to get there. That's why I align myself with Kurt Vonnegut. He laid out a plan of how to do this correctly, just Mm. like many others have laid out pretty simple plans Mm -hmm. of how to execute this properly and get better results. But he was a hopefulist because he knew it could be better, but he didn't have any faith
3: in us because we're not faithful. Humans. Yeah. If you look around and you go, what's really the problem here? It's humans. It's us. Yeah, we're the problem. But again, (laughs) we
0: have all the choices.
3: Well, so let's put a pin in that for a second because... Uh, last year, I mentioned I made a movie. Um, the movie is called "How Healthcare Became Sick Care: The True History of Medicine," and it's an hour and forty-five minutes long. And I worked on it for—I started working on it in 2014 and just finished it on October 12th oh of last year. Wow! And it's—it's um, it's, it's an amazing story. And the thing that I came away with after working on the story was, I now understand the system the money system that's yeah. running the planet yeah. and when it got control and healthcare is actually when that system got complete control of the planet yeah. they used healthcare as their leading edge and then all these oligarchs and a handful of ministries kind of followed that path that was laid down by Rockefeller at the beginning of the 20th century so you know bill gates is following that path now they they all do it they set up foundations Their foundations invest money in certain kinds of industries, and then they make money. They're profitable investments, but the foundations make those profits. So, you know, Rockefeller did this. He pretty much created the sick care system that we have today and forced out all competition to that system because he was a monopolist, and so he applied that way of doing things to, to medicine, and that's how the AMA got control of everything. And then the pharmaceutical industry, which is connected to the AMA because AMA medicine is essentially prescribing chemicals for human health problems. The pharmaceutical industry actually gained so much power from working with Rockefellers and the medical system that today I'd say the pharmaceutical industry is probably the the leading edge of corruption on the planet. You've got oil up there, but oil is slowly falling Yeah, but they away. have a license to kill. Yeah, they've Literally. got a license to kill. They're yeah. the number three cause of death in America, doctor-caused death. What are one and two? Heart disease and digestive problem. Food. Yeah, where all your health problems start yeah. is how you take care of yourself. Anyway, Rockefeller got control of everything and I knew pieces of the story, but what I didn't know was what happened to my profession. Why is the naturopathic profession, which was born in America in the beginning of the 20th century, which had so much promise and so much to offer the world, how did it get so suppressed that today AMA-style doctors think they can condescend when they talk to natural medicine. Where'd that come from? How did that mindset get a hold of the country? Turns out that in the 19th century, in the 18th century, in the 17th century, going all the way back, that there have been two schools of thought in medicine, one is that if you learn nature's laws, you can use those laws as leverage to make tomorrow different than today. You can build a better life for yourself. The other is that you're in a hostile environment and you need to wage war to survive. And the conventional medical system is waging war all the time yep. war on this, war on that. So when you're being treated for a problem, they're waging war on that problem. So they use the weapons of war to suppress, destroy, isolate, yeah. eliminate, excise the weapons of war. The same things you would do if you you're trying to take out a platoon or a group of terrorists. Yeah. That's what they're doing with healthcare care in, in our country, unless you see a natural medicine doctor. But what most people don't know is that until Rockefeller got involved... Natural medicine was the preferred form of medicine because it works. It works great. It got humanity to the 20th century. And yet throughout the 20th century, the monopoly did everything in its power using the power of the press and through politicians that it purchased to suppress that knowledge and to teach people that that's quackery.
0: Like Reaper Madness.
3: I've taken out the story and taken it apart and I've seen the whole layout of it and I put it in my movie. Here's exactly how they achieved that. It was done incrementally. It was done a little bit at a time. And there are certain things they did consistently through time. And one of them was to call names to the natural medicine doctors, the homeopaths, the botanical medicine people, uh, to call them names, to ridicule them them and discredit them, which is ironic because they were hated until they got control of the system. The conventional doctors, the AMA-style doctors, they were despised in America throughout the 19th century, and even through the 20th century. But because they kept getting more and more control, they got rid of all of the alternatives, all the options people had. So today, people are starting to figure it out. In the age of information, oh, there's botanicals that might help me. There's Things missing from my diet. I need more movement. That there's essential oils. There's all kinds there's of all kinds of things yeah. that are finally yeah. coming finally. back. But for a hundred years they were suppressed. So I got to tell that story, and to anybody who wants to watch it, could see what happened in my profession when naturopathy was born in America in 1902. The idea for it, which, when it was founded by Benedict Lust and his wife Louisa, the idea they had was to create an umbrella profession for what works in the natural medicine world and to pass those teachings forward for the betterment of humanity and for the country. They loved America. They wanted to serve the people Where of they the from? country. Uh, it came from Germany. Ooh. In fact, almost all the natural medicine streams began in Germany, unless you talk about Chinese medicine way back in China, but most of the things, botanical medicine treatments, hydrotherapy, this all came out of Germany. The use of soil, you know, earthing, Germany, it's where all this happened. So they came to this country because this was the land of opportunity and they just wanted to do good. And when I showed my movie premiere in October in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, the great grandnephew of the founder of my profession came to the showing john Loose, his great granduncle is benedict luce the founder of naturopathy and i loved meeting this guy and he told me at the end he said you got the story right because that story is very well known in his family benedict is known as uncle ben and everybody loves him the stories they tell about him what an amazing heroic guy he was and so i finally got to ask john because i could not find out what happened to benedict how did he die and he said, oh, he he, uh, he had built a second retreat in Florida, a youngborn retreat, you know, where people could go to get well. And they had all these guests staying there, and their buildings caught fire. Nobody knows what started the fire. Happened in the middle of the night, and Benedict kept going into the burning buildings and carrying out the oh guests until he succumbed to the smoke himself. They took him to the hospital where the doctors filled him with sulfa drugs and he died. And why sulfa drugs, I don't know. But this is what John told me. He said, this is how Ben died. They killed him.
0: They didn't finish the job with fire. They finished it off at the hospital. They
3: finished it off at the hospital. So... Anyway, it's an amazing story, I love making a movie about it. So I did a showing, we put it out to three people and 50 people showed up to see it on a Monday night at 6 p.m. And at that point the movie was two hours and 15 minutes long. People stayed to the end and a bunch of people as they were leaving said, you should submit this to the film festival. But I talked to a lady from the film festival and you know what, I'm retired, I don't wanna jump through all those hoops.
0: What hoops do you have to
3: jump through? You gotta jump through hoops. I just wanted to answer the question for myself. How did we wind up with this incredibly dysfunctional medical system where these doctors, they're so arrogant and conceited about what they do that they're dismissive of what actually works? How did it wind up like that? And now I know, and I'm so glad to know it, and I now see the patterning of it.
0: Is there a way to break the trend? Is it—is it educating people? Is it just... These things, this this medicine is now resurfacing, and people are seeing they don't have to get sick and die to get well, that they can
3: eat plants. Well, so one of the advantages of the time that we live in, this age of information, and I don't know how much longer this is gonna be true. Net neutrality, Uh, yes. Yeah, but at least in this moment, Anyone who wants to know something can find it out. And, uh, you know, I was able to find this whole story out. I was able to to find all these old documents and put the story together. So if you want to know something, you can now know it and... People share information now like they never have before in history. So the result of it is you see a resurgence of natural medicine. Even in the conventional medical community now, they have uh, groups of functional medicine doctors and integrative medicine doctors who are actually trying to combine the type of medicine they were trained in with the type of medicine that was suppressed by that system. So, you know, there's definitely more options for people more opportunity now and you can find things out and it's not like it's rocket science maintenance of the human form is pretty simple yeah. stuff and uh you know i've seen people in my career as a doctor i've seen people with really serious problems that their problems went away when they changed their lives yeah. and i was even told one time by my mentor he said You know, my experience, if somebody gets cancer and they want to get rid of the cancer, they're going to have to either change their life at the same level of change that the cancer would create in their life by killing them. In other words, pretty much be born again, start your life over, or they're just going to become victims of the medical system because that whole system just takes you down one notch at a time. The promise of the medical system is, take this pill, your problem goes away. It's not that simple. Take this pill, you have other problems, and that problem may not have gone away. But we have pills for the problems we've given you. But then that creates problems for which we have procedures. But then that cre- and on and on until it kills you. Eventually you succumb. Yeah, but
0: they want you barely alive because killing you you're no longer uh, a a revenue customer. stream. Yeah, you're yeah. not a customer anymore. You're,
3: no, keeping you alive is an important part of the system. But just
0: barely alive, just enough where you still need us. You need
3: the services. And otherwise yeah. you're going
0: to die and you don't want to die. Your body tells you
3: you don't want to die. So you're going to do whatever we tell you. People submit to a system that's not that concerned with them now i want to be clear i think there's a lot of wonderful doctors in the conventional system who got into medicine to help people right. so i'm not knocking the the doctors themselves right. i'm knocking the system that train those doctors who they believe they've learned how to help people using the methods of a system that doesn't care about people. that's right I've seen people's lives fundamentally change by making the most simple changes in their lives. So I'm a big believer that if you want to have a happy and healthy life, you can.
0: It's the art of change, dude. It's the art of change. Because if you change your mind, everything changes.
3: That's right.
0: It's that simple. It really is part of natural law.
3: Change your mind, change your life. Yeah.
0: And I've tried to impart this on people that if you are stuck in the same line of thinking, you know, Einstein's theory of insanity is this beautiful thing that can show you that if you are doing the same thing all the time and you're disappointed because you expect something else to happen by not doing something else, that's insane. Yeah. And most of humanity does this, yep. and it's very sad for me to watch this. And I was the same way. I went through life miserable because I was the same all the time, and I didn't try and make a shift in any way at all. But you make one little tiny shift at a time, and you will see that your life starts Absolutely. to play out completely
3: differently. Yep.
0: And I am the experiment. I know that, because I've witnessed it. Citizen so.
3: 44. Fucking A. Citizen
0: 44. <laughs> How you feeling today? Good. Yeah. You look great, by the <laughs> Thank way. you. Look you look happy and, and adjusted to anything that happens, and, and you're just <laughs> at peace with the whole fucking thing.
3: In this moment of my life, I've never been happier.
0: Well, I appreciate that you did just impart some really important information on people because aside from the show uh, allowing me to listen to the sound of my own voice, which (laughs) I kind of like, I am doing this because people have a lot to offer. And like you said, I got online and I figured out that I had cancer. I was able to diagnose myself in fucking five minutes. And now I did go to dr Bowie in medford and have him remove my cancer what a sweet amazing man what a wonderful medical experience i had Mm -hmm. a very unusual i would imagine Mm -hmm. medical experience but here i am today i'm fine i'm healthy i did make other shifts in my life and uh and therefore i got different results Mm -hmm. so anybody can do it you know if you don't have the minimum that you need to live then it's very difficult for you to do this.
3: that's for darn sure and you know it's It's very challenging for so many people right now. The economic conditions for so many people are really hard, and I do know that. But I always tell people, I said, you know, changing your life doesn't require a lot of money. You can do all kinds of stuff. Change happens in small incremental steps that have huge side effects. That's how we create big changes in our life.
0: And I think people think something big has to happen
3: big thing is the side effect of the little change That's you make. right. yeah
0: but the fact of the matter is the solutions are so simple and easy it's really a matter of execution and deciding that we're worth it
3: making to collectively the, making do the it. choice and the commitment That's absolutely it. yeah and
0: that there's nothing more to it yeah. so the, everything else is just bullshit actually to me
3: but you got to remember that discouraging people from thinking for themselves is baked in to the yeah. system we live in yeah. i'll give you a great example of this there was a uh, movie that was made called Vaxxed. Uh, V A X E D? V A X X E D. Okay. And it basically is giving people information about vaccines that their doctors don't give them so they can make an informed decision. Right. And we could go into a whole bunny trail and I don't really want to about vaccination, but somebody made a documentary and that documentary was coming to Ashland and the medical community here wrote letters to the paper telling people don't see this movie and they got it thrown out of the tribeca film festival Holy cow. robert de niro's film and he wanted a movie to show but yeah. the finance people said no you can't show that movie a documentary that was blacklisted i never heard of anything like this in my life and the arrogance of these doctors in our local community who had never seen the movie all they knew about it was whatever propaganda piece right. came to them from the system right felt so confident in their conceit to tell people you don't need that information there's nothing there no reason to look and that happened not just here but it happened all over the country huh. now well, the movies heard about it. Oh, the movie's amazing and it's still around. I highly recommend it to Vax, people. V A X X E D. Okay. Because um, there's a lot of harm that's done to children by this the ridiculous schedule that we have now. Yeah. And uh, vaccines contain substances that parents should know you're injecting that into your kid's nervous system. Yeah. Anyway, I just remember a highly respected medical doctor in the public health arena here in southern Oregon I saw him on TV telling people don't see the movie he wrote a letter to the paper saying don't see, see the movie, movie.
0: no well, how can he how can he
3: denounce something he doesn't
0: know it's, it's a though.
3: conceit it's the same conceit that allows the, the conventional system to say that the only thing that's scientific is their system, when in fact their system is mostly not at all scientific. Yeah. It doesn't it's measure trial up. Error, barely. And we're the guinea pigs. That's right. They're going, oh, well, I guess we'll take that off the market. It killed a lot of people. That is so fucked up. Yeah, that's really that's so wrong. Up, it's criminal. Yeah. Well, of course it's criminal. Absolutely criminal, yeah. but they have a license to kill, especially on vaccines, which are a liability free business. I don't know if you know this. The drug industry wants to change its business model over to vaccines because when they make a drug that kills people, they get sued and they have to pay out a lot of money. I actually collected the headlines from the Justice Department, all the legal actions that have been taken against the pharmaceutical industry, and it's breathtaking, the amount of payouts and the amount of court cases that have happened because of the corruption in that industry. But in 19, I think it was 85, Ronald Reagan signed a bill that took away liability for vaccine injury. And as a result, if a doctor gives your kid a vaccine and your kid loses the ability to walk or talk, that doctor has no liability. The drug company that made the vaccine has no liability. That's the law. So today... You have medical bullying happening for parents that are trying to raise their kids in a natural health lifestyle, don't want their kids being injected with aluminum and mercury, which are toxic metals, which you would never allow them to play with and the amounts that are injected into their bodies. And... In California, they passed a bill, uh, SB 277. It was introduced by an MD in politics, which is why I no longer will ever vote for an MD running for office, because I don't trust them. Uh, This guy, Richard Pan, in California, got this bill through. They ignored—they had the biggest turnout of parents with injured children trying to stop this bill. Thousands of families on weekdays showing up just to testify against the bill. They ignored— Everybody, and today in California, there's no philosophical exemption to vaccination. There's no uh, religious exemption to vaccination. And your kid can't go to public school unless they're up to date on all their vaccines. So even though you're a taxpayer, you're playing by all the rules, they have taken away informed consent in California if you want your child to get a public education. That's what we've come to now.
0: Well, maybe this is a good way for the public education system to fucking crumble.
3: Well, I'll tell you what. A lot of people like myself who used to be big fans of the public education system no longer feel that way about it. It's a programming thing. a political program. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the overreach is typically the way that people come to realize they're getting screwed.
0: Have they found any studies that link perhaps this whole thing to autism and other... Uh, birth defects and things that are happening since this
3: bill went through california's autism rate has continued to skyrocket mm. it's definitely gone up since they mandated all of this i think it's been a year and a half but they did it phasing it in so not everybody got forced through it at once right so they could keep a lid on the descent yeah but i think at this point we're now at the point where uh, california has everybody has come due and it's no joke. I mean, literally, a kid can't go to public school unless you can prove that you've been to a medical doctor who gave your kid this complete raft of vaccines that the CDC recommends. Mm-hmm. The CDC, by the way, is a private corporation. These vaccines are bought by our government in huge lots. All yeah. the flu advertisements, they're yeah. just trying to get rid of this product. It, quote unquote, well, goes bad. Away. Exactly. Yeah. And so, lose money. Exactly. Yeah. Because money is what drives the whole system yeah. now. It's all very sad. Well, it is and it's not. That's what I was saying, you know. It appears to me this is the design of this world, is that it's supposed to challenge decent people to rise up and do their best to make a difference. Well,
0: this is why I tell people when they complain about the political environment right now, I say, that poor son of a bitch up there doesn't even know he's the fucking Buddhist teacher showing us how horrible we've become. And how our decision-making has become completely out of control. That's our shadow. That's right. And this is actually pure opportunity to now... It is. It's a golden opportunity. Absolutely. And when I tell people that, they get it. They may have been angry and completely fucked up in their head before we talked about it. But when I point out that this is opportunity and not problem, they see that little pinhole at the end of the tunnel that... Yet now's our chance to start making different decisions about things so we don't put ourselves through this process again. I mean, why do you think those guys came up with the Declaration of Independence? They knew this was going to happen. They knew that their idea of trying to govern an entire country was going to collapse because it's not sustainable. This was a temporary solution. We see that there's a lot of corruption that's going to be involved with this, monetarily or otherwise, but it's all based on power and greed. Mm -hmm it's so- yes and at some point you're going to have to stop it it'll probably be good for a hundred years but at some point this is going to spin out of fucking control and you're going to have to tear that shit down and build something else so it was already known by our forefathers that this is not going to turn out well probably for us <laughs> and we're sorry now and we've written this other document <laughs> to inspire you to burn that motherfucker down yeah. that we just created for you now
3: Water the roots of the tree of liberty, yeah. Well, that's pretty much it.
0: And I think the art of change is a perfect way to end this on because (laughs) you've taken it upon yourself to be an educator. And I appreciate that because without some of the things you do, there's things that we just simply don't know. And that's really important. That ignorance factor is so debilitating. I agree. It's been a long time since we chatted. It has. we made up for a a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) And I I appreciate your being super candid about your life and all this stuff. Yeah, Mark, fun talking with you. Thanks Thanks for thanks for the logo.
0: Well, that's the show. That certainly was a lot of stuff. I want to thank Dr. Rick. It was awesome uh, to hear about his life. I knew really nothing about him, as I know almost nothing about anybody. And uh, uh, to uh, get to know him a little better and, and his experience, and it's pretty cool. Also, uh, it was great to talk to Brent Kell, a uh, super nice guy. I love his intention, and, uh, and I think he's making uh, major medical strides to help us better get treatment for things that happen to us in a reasonable and affordable way. If you want to check out Valley Immediate Care online, their website is valley-ic.com. That's valley, V-A-L-L-E-Y, the letter I, then the letter C, dot com. And uh, if you want to check out that incredible documentary called The Third Industrial Revolution with Jeremy Rifkin, you can find that at impact.com. .vice.com And again, uh, I'm going to be posting a link of how you can listen to How Healthcare Became Sick Care The True History of Medicine by uh, Dr. Rick Kirshner Again, great to do this and uh, I'm honored to bring you information, stories people, and myself We're your mother's uncle I'd like to take this opportunity to thank those of you who have donated to support me doing the show You know who you are, and it is deeply appreciated. I want to personally thank Rich Reese for hooking me up with some great guests. I want to thank Sega Alexander for uh, all he brings to the show. And uh, everybody who participates with me in this collaboratively in one way or another, thank you so much. I also want to say a special happy 14th birthday to my son, Sam. I love you, Sammy, and I'm so glad you came into my life.
3: Whatever you're doing is not working. There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do.
1: I am Citizen Forty-Four.